Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Today is Ken Dorsey Day. Welcome back to Cleveland, Ken Dorsey. I thought it was funny hearing you know, Ken's uh, press conference um, for about, uh, what was it, about 30 minutes during Baskin and Phelps today. And that sounds like I'm going to, to take a shot at Baskin and Phelps. I'm not. But I, I, I was listening to it, and I do think it was funny that, you know, somebody was like, ah, does it feel familiar? And he's like, yeah, nah, they've, they've kind of reworked this. It does not feel familiar to me. And then I thought back to how many times they've redone the building in Berea. And it, there was a moment there where it was literally every two years, and you'd walk in and would look, and maybe not completely different, but if you go from where it was at the beginning of the Mangini era, actually, sorry, at the Romeo era, to where it was when Ken Dorsey came back, I would imagine it looked quite different, much like the Browns organization itself. But there were some instant things that I thought stood out at the Ken Dorsey press conference. And as always, we, we throw it out to you guys, 216-474-0092. Did what you hear from Ken Dorsey today make you feel better? Did it, did it get you jazzed up for this hire? I still think this is a pretty middle-of-the-road hire. Right where Jim Jim Schwartz last year, guys, even before the press conference, you heard you, you looked at the resume, you looked at the system, how it fit Miles, how it fit your cornerbacks, and you thought to yourself, "There's no way this hire doesn't work out." The Ken Dorsey hire, yeah, there's some really good things. Right, uh, his history with with two guys who can run the hell, run like hell, like Josh Allen and Cam Newton. There's also some some things that are like, oh, that's interesting, including the fact his last two jobs, he's been fired as the OC in Buffalo and now as the quarterbacks, or previously as the quarterbacks coach in Carolina. Coaches get fired all the time. Not the biggest thing in the world, but again, kind of a middle-of-the-road hire. Ken Dorsey earned a fan today when he refused at any point to say Sean McDermott, his old uh, head coach in Buffalo's name, I believe he referred to him in nebulous as the head coach. When the head coach decides to make a decision, you don't really have a lot of power over that. There's very few people in this world that I will give the Voldemort treatment. You will just never hear their name. I will, And I'm not talking about just on air. Because there's more names I won't say on air just because of an awkward situation or me not wanting to kick the hornet's nest. But like off air, very few Voldemorts in my life. There's a few. And so it's the kind of petty that I can get behind. Most pettiness kind of just annoys me because it's not it just doesn't matter. But like Ken Dorsey got murked halfway through the season. The offense was pretty much the same. Josh Allen just stopped throwing interceptions. And everybody acted like uh, Joe Brady split the atom for the first time. 
and that Ken Dorsey must have been a, a schmuck of epic proportions. So I like that on the heels of the Ty Dunn piece three months ago, I like that Ken Dorsey's still petty about that. There's a window when we get fired. There is a window that you can go ahead and be petty in after getting fired, and Ken Dorsey's still in it. It's different for every business, by the way. Um, now, this one might sound out of pocket. My other, well, okay, there's a few big takeaways, but my second first impression of the press conference today is one guy sounds a lot more like a head coach than the other guy. And that's not, the, the guy who sounds most like a head coach isn't your head coach, Kevin Stefanski. That doesn't mean he isn't a head coach. He is. And Kevin answered almost every conceivable question I had about him this year. Winning with five different quarterbacks. Well, winning with four different quarterbacks and then starting Jeff Driscoll. Um, I'm still not over that. Still not over the week, week 18 loss. It mattered. I'm, and I was right on that. I was proven right with how they got the, their booties kicked in the playoffs. I'm still upset. I have a right to be upset. I'm still in the window of being upset. However, um, at some point, Kevin just needs to stop caring. And and this is this is a bigger picture Browns thing. At some point, they need to understand the messaging just doesn't matter that much. Like there are two things you can do that are going to sell tickets and make fans happy. The first is you can win every press conference you want. And and everybody from Jimmy Haslam all the way down to the water boy can have the same messaging. It does not mean a single darn thing if you don't win. And the Browns are the Browns are coming off an 11-win season. Yeah, the playoffs are a bit of a disappointment. But, like, guys, this is a moment where you don't have to sound like in Kevin today. And in, in Kevin in some of his press conferences sounds like there's a camera in front of him and three gunmen behind him. when he's got a script that he's got to get to. It's just not that serious. And, and Kevin likes to talk, well, I grew up at WIP. It's Cleveland. If you win, people are going to be nicer to you. If you lose, people are going to be meaner than you, or meaner to you. It's it's kind of just basic Midwestern, like, read the room kind of situation. And so that brings me to what I think is my third point. By the way, Kevin's a good head coach. Kevin is one. I appreciate Kevin. I just would like it if he could just loosen the tie a little bit and just relax. You're, you're one, you're good looking. That goes far in any line of work. Two, you're smart as hell. That goes line uh, goes far in any line of work. And just in general, we can just relax. The Browns can just relax. You're going to get criticized on something. It's okay. In the end, it doesn't mean. It, does, it literally means nothing. Like, this idea that criticism is the big boogeyman. Guys, fans, don't, fans are never going to love anything unless you win the Super Bowl. And even then, there's going to be one guy that's like, I would have done it this way. It, it, it's okay. But that brings us to what I think was just peak silliness. And that was Kevin Stefanski in his two minute terse tense. Uh, gotta say the right thing. Opening monologue before he introduced uh, Ken Dorsey talking about play calling and building the offense play calling, which I know everybody wants to talk about. We'll get there. It's February 5th. What's most important, what I'm looking forward to the most is putting this offense back together with Ken really leading the charge. And, and that's why he's here. I love Kevin Stefanski dropping February 5th. As if that's just, it's too, come on, guys. It's too early to talk about who's going to call the plays. It's February 5th. Everybody knows that's a February 9th topic. Everybody knows that that is a February 25th topic. And I, listen, I'm going to leave room open for the fact that there's a, 
there's going to be a moment where Ken after or Kevin after all the 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 the, the hires have been announced that we hear specifically from Kevin. That's at least the way the Browns have set it up. Can we just admit it does not take eight months to find out who's going to be calling plays? Can we just all agree that we're the Browns are probably pretty sure at this moment who's going to call plays? And the only reason why you don't is some goofy, weird, unnecessary paranoia about the questions it might lead to to your new offensive coordinator who sounds a hell of a lot more polished than anybody in that organization that we hear talk other than Andrew Barry. So, like, what are we doing here? Like, this is just one of those things where the easiest – and here's the thing, guys. Yes, fans will have different reactions, and media is going to have different reaction, and people are going to build narratives around who calls the plays. Who cares? You're in the offseason. And when it comes to this decision – who calls the plays absolutely does matter. And it's funny when people go, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. Okay, to who? Because I do think when you start thinking about what's gone wrong with Deshaun the last couple of years and what you can do better with Deshaun moving forward, who calling plays has mattered the last two years. Who called plays in Houston has mattered. It doesn't mean the sky is falling. It doesn't mean that if this doesn't work out this year, fire everybody, although that could be with the way that Jimmy Haslam's thinking or the way Paul is thinking. It, it doesn't mean automatically that's how people in Cleveland are thinking, though. And so I just thought it was the easiest layup. And this is like, guys, this is me speaking directly to the Browns organization because I can be critical of everybody there. But there's nobody I loathe in that organization. I, I, it might be a little, might be a little too many people, too many cooks in the kitchen. But that's a personal opinion, guys. You had the easiest layup. I watched, a, I watched ten-year-olds play basketball over the weekend. Nobody hits the easy layup. Nobody can. And that reminds me of this: when the easiest layup is uh, Kevin's going to call plays, the easiest layup is Ken's going to call plays, and then we'll talk about it. But by and large, nothing will change. But the people who will like it will love that. The people who will hate it, ah, they'll grumble for a little bit and then forget about it until we talk about it in, I don't know, October 1st. But the idea of uh, February, it's February 5th, guys. Come on. Just what are we doing? This is this is not, not national secrets, okay? This is not in the Book of Secrets uh, in the Nicolas Cage movie, the, the second uh, national treasure movie. It's really okay. Just take that available victory lap when you get it. It's less that... The Browns failed in a big way today with the Ken Dorsey press conference. It's just they they had an opportunity to put one storyline to bed. And I think sometimes they obsess over trying to to get out of what will be the negative headline or you know they they try and just put a little too much thought into. And I don't think it's the same thing as when they used to major in the minor, right? But it's kind of a symptom of that. It's this idea of just who's who's calling plays. And I appreciate an organization that is thorough. But at some point, there's a difference between thorough and, and maybe anal retentive and maybe going a little bit too far when you can just come out and say, yeah, Ken's going to call the plays. And it's his experience. It's his experience in multiple systems. I got to hear be multiple a lot today. Love to hear that. Um, but... It was just the simplest thing to do, 
and instead it continues to be a conversation. At this point, like I don't like I don't think there is a lose lose option here. I think it's only win win. If Kevin Stefanski calls the plays to start next year, and halfway through the year he hits a rut or he feels overwhelmed or honestly the offense just isn't clicking because it doesn't look close enough to what he's comfortable with, he can hand it off to Ken Dorsey. And if you and here's the other part of the win win, if you name Ken Dorsey the the starter now, uh the sorry, the starter now, the offensive coordinator now and the play caller right now, what it allows you to do is just put that conversation to bed. And it just Either way, I would feel comfortable with either guy calling the plays. Either guy's done it. Either guy has had some level of success, and it becomes about fit. And so while we have this conversation, I do think, and I actually didn't end up listening to it, I will give Ken and Danny Cunningham credit because there was a topic I was uh, looking on the Odyssey app today, jumping around, listening to different things on the show, getting ready for today's show. And there was a topic that I think has been at the root of all of this offseason that we talked about with the Browns. And it's pretty simple. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of take it one step further, but it was basically just, do you trust the Browns? And I'll be honest with you, I, I think it's pretty simple. I think it's really important to say, I trust the Browns more now than I do five years ago, seven years ago, eight years ago. And I think they're in a much healthier place. I think they've, I think I've really uh, enjoyed how a- Andrew Barry, his philosophy, the kind of constant aggression and constantly be- being willing to make the deal that's right for them. I really appreciate Kevin Stefanski. I'd like it if he could just lighten up a little bit in his press conferences and realize that you know the worst thing that could happen is you give us a sound clip we're going to use for the next twenty four hours, and then we're probably going to forget about it. There are some there's some questions I still have about the structure and power because that stuff matters. But like, I feel really good about where the Browns are. But that trust thing is really interesting because I think, in you know, I think it's funny to 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 hear from some of you on social media. At Nick Wilson says social media reactions brought to you by Scheiben Jewelers, Cleveland's premier jewelry store. I think it's interesting to hear some of you guys talk on social media. And also know how some of you guys talk when we're we're hanging out in the Muni lot or when we're hanging out at the uh, the the West Third tailgate, because there's a lot of why are we having the conversation about play calling, or well why does it matter if there was any other factors in the Bill Callahan uh, in Bill Callahan leaving for Tennessee, and I get it, but the Browns have not got and I get it because the Browns just won eleven games. But I think when we get to the level of trust, this is an area where every time you have some level of success, you're going to raise the bar for your team, whether it's in their messaging, their decision-making, who they bring in, who they hire, who they trade for, how aggressive they are in free agency. And I think we're now at a logical point where I I think Kevin Stefanski is going to get a contract extension this offseason. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn to say that. I think Andrew Barry... It could be likely to get a contract extension. I, I think they both had five-year deals. That's a good thing for the Cleveland Browns. That's also an area where you can ask yourself, okay, how much do I trust the Cleveland Browns? Because simply saying, 
well, I trust them because I trust them more than I did five years ago. I don't think we had a lower bar in Cleveland sports history than our bar for trust. It was just hire somebody and don't screw up the press conference. Pander to us baselessly like Freddie Kitchens and we're going to love you until you get out on the, on the, on the field and until they lose a game that they shouldn't lose or until things fall apart like they did with Freddie or, or uh, uh, John Dorsey's inability to manage others. Like John Dorsey, I still think, is a brilliant football guy. I think he really knows football. I think he understands how to build a winning roster, and that's different than just knowing how to scout. There are guys who are really good scouts. There are guys who are really good scouts and can piece together a roster, and then there are guys, and this is the step I think John might have been missing, there are guys who are brilliant scouts, can can construct a roster, know what, what you need to win, and then they can also manage people around them and manage people above them. That's a little bit different. And I, the last remaining piece, I think Andrew Barry has, has learned what you need to have on a winning roster. I thought that was this year. I thought, I thought if you look at the, the way they built the two previous rosters, the eight win team, the seven win team, there were some issues at points. You can't have issues, Right. There was some depth issues, obviously, that we've talked about a lot. But the thing, and, and by the way, I actually think Andrew Barry might be doing a hell of a job of managing as much up as he does down, which matters a lot in a convoluted corporate setting. But I don't look at it as just, do you trust the Browns? Because I think when you say, do you trust the Browns? I think you can say, well, do you trust Kevin? Do you trust... Andrew Barry, do you trust Jimmy Haslam? Do you, like you can get into, do you trust the locker room? Do you trust Miles Garrett? I look at it more, more from an organizational standpoint because I think there's a huge difference between organizational culture and a locker room culture. And I thought there's, and I think this is going to be something that I play from Ken Dorsey's press conference. That is a Rorschach test, a Rorschach test for everybody listening. You're going to hear what you want from Ken Dorsey's answer here, but he was talking about, the offensive line, the offense schemes, uh, you know, this was kind of in in the middle of a conversation about that and then hiring a new offensive line coach. And I think this is a fascinating insight to the Browns organization. The thing I respect about this organization and, and Kevin Moth is, is how thorough they are in making these decisions. Like, it, I mean, it was darn near like a root canal to get this job. Now, I mean, uh, you go through a lot, you know, of testing, of interviews, of, I mean, I met more people in this, this building than I have in any building I've ever been in, just uh, in the interview process, which is awesome. As somebody coming in, like, that's what you want. So I actually think it's interesting. And, and again, I don't think it's positive or negative. And and he, he everybody was going to hear the root canal thing and take it a certain way. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that Ken Dorsey had the vetting program of all vetting programs. I think it's really smart when organizations take you through every rung of their buying process and you get to meet with everybody, you understand the expectations. I think that's a sign of good communication. I also think that it's a sign that there are a lot of people involved in the conversation. And so I trust the Browns right now more than I did five years ago. I'll even say I probably trust the Browns as much as I've ever trusted them for as long as I've worked in the media. They've had um, a good head coach, or sorry, a head coach I thought could win, and that was Mike Pettin. But then they didn't have the right GM. 
or they've had a head coach that I thought could win in Eric Mangini. The problem is he was also every other job in the, the, the company and those other jobs overwhelmed him and that got him fired amongst other things. So the, uh, Mike Holmgren, uh, Tom Heckert, I thought though, I thought that leadership structure was really good. I mean, I don't know what Mike did, but Tom Hecker was a good GM. Problem is they hired Pat Shermer as a head coach. No offense, Pat, if you're listening. So just it kind of the bigger question here of do you trust the Browns organization? I think it's more, do you guys trust that the Browns organization is dysfunction-free? Because that, to me, is the end game. Maybe it's not dysfunction-free. Every organization, you're going to find this out. If if you had been in, if you had lived in and been a Chiefs fan or in the Chiefs media, or if you'd been in the uh, Panthers media, if you'd been in the the Giants media, every organization has some level of dysfunction because you're still dealing with people. But like locker room culture from year to year is something that is it it, it ebbs and flows because you're dealing with 53 to 57 to 70 different people. And some of those are there on one year. Some of those are there for a day. Some of those are there for seven years. Like, that's really tough. Organizational culture is what truly matters. So the red flags don't go up in hearing Ken Dorsey say, I met as many people in the organization uh, during this process than I did in any of my other times in any other organization because that's the way the Browns do things. But there have been some reports, and we'll get to one of them later. There are some reports about who makes decisions and how the pie is split up and and who has access to whom and how big of a, how big of an influence certain people have at this point going into the next contracts of Kevin Stefanski and Andrew Barry a big thing for my trust in the organization that I'll trust this thing is headed in the right direction is if certain people start that their power is diminished I don't think you can win every single year, year in, year out. I don't think you can win every single year with 17 cooks in the kitchen. I just think it's a lot. I just think it, football is so hard to win, and when, you, when you're trying to make a simple decision and there's somebody around you that swoops in with the – it's like Armageddon where the guy comes in. We have 16 days till it hits the hits the earth, the asteroid, that is. I don't know if you've seen that movie. Spoiler alert. But, like, that works. I think the Browns needed the structure that they've had the last four years because of guys like John Dorsey and because of guys like Hugh Jackson. But I think we've gotten – that first step was to prove that, that Andrew Barry and Kevin Stefanski could functionally do their jobs and – and could honestly just that they were worthy of being employed for their the entirety of their first contract. So if the Browns really want, instead of over, I mean, just overbearing message, mongering, stuff like that, focusing too much on what Kevin says to the point of paralysis when you hear him talk, um, it, instead of making sure everybody, there's the same thing, instead of firing coaches allegedly because of, they might have leaked things to the media. That that happens in every place, by the way. But instead of focusing on that, I think the best thing you can do is start simplifying and giving more power to Andrew Barry and, and Kevin Stefanski. And I think when I hear, oh, man, I had to meet all these people and go jump through all these hoops to get this job, that's not exactly what Ken said. I'm paraphrasing. That sounds a lot more like the things that I think have started to hold back the organization that once upon a time had a place in the organization.
You got to start winning consistently. Ken and Danny this morning, uh, the morning boys of the morning show, um, having a conversation. And I, again, I like the topic so much because I think it's so much at what we've been hitting on the last three or four weeks. And I don't think it's as simple as the best part of where the Browns are, guys. It's not as simple as do you trust the Browns? No. Like there, we wouldn't even pause five years ago. But we're we're still on the way to winning consistent. And I think the best sign of an organization is not, is there a negative report about things going on in your building? It's not, do all of your player players get together and have a have like a like a massage train and just like talk to each other and just feel, you know, hey, these are my feelings. No, those are not the only signs of a the, yes. It's great when you don't have drama in either your organization or on the field. Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh dealt with George Pickens at points snapping beyond reason this season. And they didn't cut him. They didn't trade him. They might do that this offseason. I don't know. But, like, they didn't do the thing that bad organizations do, which is overreact to negative emotions. Or when there were reports about Mike Tomlin's job security. They didn't overreact to things they couldn't control. And so we need to be looking. This is so to me, where the Browns are, it's a lot easier to say, do you trust the organization when the Browns uh, were a one win team and it was obvious things were, we, guys, we were looking for anything, any ray of hope. We were talking ourselves into starting a unpolished 50-second pick in the draft into Sean Kaiser one year. That was literally their plan at quarterback. Hey, we got this, guys. Don't worry about it. Ruined a young kid's career in the process, by the way. That's the kind of thing bad organizations do. And like in Kansas City, they've, they've made six straight uh, AFC title games. This is their fourth Super Bowl in six years. It's pretty, pretty easy to tell. The culture in KC is pretty okay. Everybody else, unless you are Carolina or Kansas City or one of the five best teams in the NFL or the five worst teams in the NFL, you kind of have to just pay a lot of attention. And if the Browns want to win consistently, and that's the goal, because here's because this is all it, winning itself is not linear, but there are steps that you have to go through to be the to, for the Browns to be the organization we want them to be. They've already climbed out of the swamp. They've already climbed out of the tanking era. And then they went to, and they went past losing consistently. And now they're kind of in a 50 50 state. In four years, with Kevin and Andrew and Deep Podesta, in four years, half the time they've won. They haven't, they haven't kind of got over the next hump. And that's not winning the Super Bowl, by the way. When the Super Bowl comes, when you have a team in the playoffs every single year, that's when we should start to, yes, you can have expectations as last year. Well, it's a level win team. They're a lot of fun, yada, yada, yada. Like, yes, that that can be. You can, you can have a team that just kind of randomly pops up out of nowhere to win a Super Bowl. Most of the time, you've seen that team progress, even if they don't win literally four out of four years in that fifth, uh, that, that fifth year they win the Super Bowl. But they've won three out of four years. They've they've been to the playoffs three out of the four years. Or they've been to a conference title two out of the four years, right? So what we're looking for now is, does it 
does it, is it start to look like it should look? And that becomes winning with Deshaun. That becomes maximizing Deshaun. That becomes offering long-term stability to your coach and to your GM, which is contract extensions. But I think the simpler thing here is if the goal is to win consistently, I, I think the Browns need to lessen the restrictor plates on the two guys who've proven they can do their job well. You know, I don't think Andrew Barry should be having his hand held by Paul D. Podesta anymore. You know, I think this is a scenario, no, no, no disrespect to Paul, but I can't imagine what it's like to have these, these, these decisions being made and constantly have to go to somebody who's rarely in the building to have those conversations. And the, the perception, whether it's reality or not, and we'll get more into this perception later, is that Paul D. Podesta is runs interference on some of the big decisions and that some of his decisions and some of the things that he thinks ends up being what Jimmy Haslam thinks and they become the reality. For instance, the firing of Alex Van Pelt. We're going to get to that sound later in today's show. It's really important that moving forward, the dynamics here simplify that Andrew Barry and Kevin Stefanski are the guys making the decisions and are the guys because they're the football guys. I'm, I don't think Paul D. Podesta is just a baseball guy anymore. I think he can learn football to some degree. But in this scenario, there's no other scenario set up like this where Paul D. Podesta, the, the head of whatever, is kind of constantly in every decision and at points pushing for decisions that might be antithetical to what the head coach or the GM wants. That is is going to become a bigger and bigger issue the longer Andrew Barry and Kevin Stefanski are on the job. It just is. At some point, you've hired the football guys. You've raised them in this organizational culture. You've shown, they've shown you what they're about. It is time that that becomes the focal point, that Kevin starts making more of these decisions, including who's on his staff and who isn't. And so I don't think that's what happens this offseason. I think there have been people outside of the two most important people in your organization that aren't your owner. And that needs to stop. And that goes back to what Charles Robinson said about the organization back in, I think, November, where there were questions about the, the simplicity of decision-making. That goes back to... Our questions about whose decision was it to fire Alex Van Pelt, those things matter. And I know we're all still in the afterglow. Guys, do you want to know how things look uneven? You want to know how things get really uncomfortable? Well, okay, you want to know how things get led to like you get the crap kicked out of you in the the postseason? It's when the perception internally, and this is the thing that we don't know because they got it on lockdown, it's when the perception internally is that your head coach isn't fully empowered. That was acceptable the first four years of the, this season. But if the Browns want to go from making the playoffs 50% of the time to making the playoffs 100% of the time, it is time to actually give Andrew Barry and Kevin Stefanski the rightful amount of power. And I'm not as worried about Andrew. I think Andrew is is fully cloaked in power. 
I am very worried that Kevin Stefanski is not given the adequate kind of power in the organization. And that is something that I just don't think work, works long-term. I think that setup is akin to Dallas, where the head coach is always the outsider. Mike McCarthy, listen, Mike McCarthy's worked there five years. He's the outsider. Will McClay, the the assistant, uh, sorry, the, the player development guy, not an outsider. The Jones family, not outsiders. The head coach can't constantly be the guy with the least amount of power in the scenario. And I really do think that's where we are with the Cleveland Browns. To talk about Ken Dorsey Day, to talk about the Browns offseason, we welcome on Nathan Zagura, Browns analyst on the North Homestead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. Nathan, ahoy. What's up, man? Good to be with you. It's uh, always great to have you. I got to know, I, I know uh, I know the, Z- the Zaguras uh, roll deep. What are we doing this offseason, friend? Uh, we got a, a little anniversary trip back to uh, to Scottsdale coming up uh, in February, middle of February, February 17th. And then other than that, you know, just locked in. We'll get the combine will be right when I get back and then we'll have free agency. It never ends the National Football League. So we're all we're always going to be moving. But that'll be that's the big trip that's on the horizon. I'm not buying that there's not a Costa Rica trip there, a Jamaica no. trip. Come on, Nathan. No, you can be no. honest with you. Boy, not Nikki right now. Does. Right. And listen, I would love that. Hopefully, we'll get back to Port Vallarta. We always love going there, so we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. We haven't we haven't decided yet. And some there's got to be some trip for me to go chase the small ball around. So we got we got things to work on still. I chase the small ball around is the perfect way because I do. I chase it into the into the lake. I chase it into the farmer's field. Like that's the perfect way. No, to you got to let those ones go, Nick. You yeah. Let, once they're that's that you've given up on that ball. That ball's I, gone. I'm the wrong combination of cheap and bad at golf. So I, I think I think that's kind of where we are. Um, Nathan, what stood out to you most from Ken Dorsey's intro presser today? Just that he, how much he kind of you can see how he would fit here in terms of you know very intelligent, very kind of calm. Uh, except when he's not, which we certainly know that's a fiery competitor, despite the calm exterior, uh, a very intentional, I thought with his words and also kind of what he was talking about doing here with this offense. And I think that he comes from a background and the things that are his strengths are things that maybe were voids that needed to be filled in our offense. And so, you know, coming from that spread, shotgun RPO drop back game dual threat quarterbacks you know with Cam and with Josh Allen I think he's going to have a lot of ideas and concepts and things that will be very well tailored to what Deshaun Watson's skills are and the things that he does well and I and when I talked to him on Browns Daily you know I said we kind of have a unique chance you don't see a lot of times where the Shanahan Kubiak system is also really married with kind of that shotgun RPO game. It's kind of you're really good at one or the other, and you think about the quarterbacks that operate them. This is a unique, I think, opportunity to kind of have that full offensive arsenal, uh, and I think it will be very helpful, and I certainly we all hope so, right, because it's the most important thing, but for to get Deshaun Watson playing as one of the top five quarterbacks in the NFL as he was in Houston. So that was a big uh, talking point. Ken kind of made a few references today about – you know, not just his time in Buffalo with Josh Allen, but his time with Cam in Carolina. I'm, I'm curious, like, schematically, system-wise, what's the most important? We've heard RPOs, we've heard spread, we've heard all these different concepts, but, like, what's the most important thing offensively, schematically related to getting the most and the max out of Deshaun? Well, I think it's to, to figure out what he is the most comfortable with, the things that he is, excels at, and I think – we have an opportunity now with Ken Dorsey and his background, as you mentioned with Cam and with Josh Allen, to 
to have those things in our arsenal that maybe he is the most comfortable with. And I don't know that, you know, with kind of that under center scheme, if we had that. The other thing I would add is Ken Dorsey's been very effective at scheming up shot plays that do not come off solely of play action. And for the Browns, that really is the staple, right? Everything looks the same. The marriage of the run pass, you sell that run action, you can hit big plays. And we certainly saw that with Joe Flacco. So I think having the ability to be vertical and to really stretch the field, challenge the field, regardless of if we're going an under center play action, deep shot back player, just a straight up from the shotgun drop back. I think will be will be valuable for Deshaun and I think valuable for the Cleveland Browns. I think look, we've got one of the best offensive systems in the NFL. If there was one thing, you know, that you really haven't seen this offensive style kind of really thrive with, it is that kind of you know, a quarterback like Deshaun. And so Deshaun has been, you know, he did some of it his rookie year in Houston, but for the most part was a shotgun guy who made plays. And I think you're going to get some more opportunities to do that with some of the things that Ken Dorsey is so well versed in uh, now that he's on the staff. Nathan, will we know who will call the plays offensively by Memorial Day? I don't know. That, that's a, a fair question. I don't know. It, it, based on how we deal and kind of disseminate that kind of information, my guess is you won't know until either the preseason or week one because it really doesn't matter and there's no benefit from letting other people know as long as the Browns know what their plan is going to be. I thought from the way that, that Kevin stated, it, talked about it, and from the way that Ken talked about it is they're going to figure out whatever they think it, it gives us the best chance to win, and then that's what they're going to go with. Kevin's an elite play caller. I really think he is. I think he knows how to sequence things very well. Dorsey obviously was very effective in Buffalo and, and really got – Josh Allen just kind of really turned the ball over a lot early in the year, and some of that was put onto Dorsey, and that's why they made that change there. But you look at you know his full season, they were number two in yards, number two in points, and so he's been effective at it. I think they'll, they'll figure that out. That is something that I think – people outside the building are much more worried about and enamored with than perhaps in the building, if that makes sense. I don't disagree with you on that or that Kevin is really darn good at calling plays. Nathan Zagura, Browns analyst on the North Olmstead Chrysler, Cheap Dodge Ram Hotlines. I do just like answers. I'm a simple man, Nathan. Um, yeah. I, what is the Browns' number one need this offseason? That's a good question. Um, in my mind... Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. 
Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. It is a field-stretching wide receiver. It doesn't necessarily have to be a, the number one, but, for example, even if it's a guy like Gabe Davis, who knows Ken Dorsey, knows his system, has been one of the best vertical receivers in the NFL, gives size that we don't have in our room, you know, that would be great. I think that that's, from an offensive standpoint, that's the number one thing to me. Um, and, and then defensively, you know, whether it's Zadarius coming back or, or you go and you bring somebody else in, I think getting, you know, another – we still haven't seen that other pass rusher opposite Miles get to, you know, the double-digit sacks. Clowney got close at nine, but I think having that second guy would, would be a big, big thing. I'd love to see Zadarius back. I think that you could take a look at a guy like Derek Barnett, who was a former first-rounder in Philly, not saying that he's the total answer. I thought Alex Wright came on really strong at the end of the year, had a sack in four of the last five games. Um, but, you know, Barnett was a guy who, with Jock Cesare, who's now the defensive line coach, played the best football of his career in Houston. So he's somebody who would probably come cheap, but that's really it. I mean, I think it's kind of figuring out who's going to be the offensive line coach is probably a big one because you're trying to replace the irreplaceable in Bill Callahan. Um, But, yeah, I want playmaker on offense at the wide receiver position, and then you could think about trotting out you know, Nick Chubb, Chief, and then at wide receiver – Whoever this guy is, Amari and Elijah, and then maybe Cedric Tillman keeps developing. You know, David Bell keeps developing. That's those would be great scenarios, and maybe you draft somebody as well. But yeah, I want that receiver, and I think people are hoping it's going to be T. Higgins. I've seen you know Deshaun recruiting him and all that. It's hard for me to envision everybody in Cincinnati saying it's going to be a tag and trade. It's it's really hard for me to envision a scenario in which the Cincinnati Bengals say, yeah, sure, you guys can have T. Higgins in our division right up in the state in Cleveland. I just don't see that being realistic. Nathan, looking to the tight end spot, and this is going to, I, I think Njoku could do it, but I think they value his blocking so much it probably makes it tougher to, given that they could want to do some more spread concepts. Could we maybe see a need for like, and needs hard, but could we see them go looking for another tight end that maybe can help more in like an inline tight end spot or maybe even some of they could spread out more? I mean, I think Chief would be, there, there aren't, it's Kittle and, and Chief are probably the best two all around receiving and blocking tight ends. So I don't know if you'd be looking for an inline guy as much. I think Jordan Akins, you know, showed at, at we just didn't use him much. I think he maybe would have a chance to flourish a little more uh, in a system like this and was a very good pass catcher the year before down in Houston where he had 500 yards, five touchdowns, and averaging 13.4 yards a catch. Um, I, I think that's a position that could have some turnover. We'll see, you know, with Harrison Bryant, what that, if he's back. They've got a guy on the practice squad. Honestly, if you're looking for just like a guy with an unbelievable physique who could probably block Zaire Mitchell Payton is somebody that certainly I think could fit that bill tomorrow. He's a specimen. Um, I think it's, look, I'm always enamored with the the receiver position. I think that's got to be. That's probably the big one. And then defense, it's just maintaining, you know, what you had in that defensive line room, knowing that you had so many of your defensive tackles on one-year deals and, and some of your defensive end as well in the, ten, in the sense of Zadarius Smith. Nathan, we know uh, Andrew Barry likes to get creative. I mean, some of the stuff he's done just for Amari or for Zadarius, some of the other trades he's made. Um, it's honestly one of my favorite things about him. I love when, yep. when GMs kind of just have that galaxy brain ability like he does. But if the Browns were to deal from any of their positions of strength, whether it's to get a receiver or to try and get you know higher up in the draft or another top 100 draft pick, what area would, would make the most sense if they were looking to deal from their current roster? I, I, that I don't know. My guess would be offensive line because you 
have so much investment there and you do have so much talent and you know with the way Dewan Jones played you've got basically three starting tackles so maybe and you're going to need them so you never want to trade out of your depth but at the same time that feels like a position where we have things that people might find appealing around the league. Nathan it's always good to talk to you buddy uh, you've been such a great sport always appreciate you and uh, enjoy Scottsdale but uh, you know just keep all us right. in the deeds you when, want, you, when something else comes up you know all right you want something yeah was something a little more exotic and exciting all right I'll work on it I just, that's just how I think about you I just think yeah. of you as a man of leisure as a man who goes out there because you work your ass <laughs> off so much dude like you really do that like when you're off I got you know hey man we're I'm, never off though we're I'm, never off I'm Browns going Daily's. to South Africa like that's what no. like, I need that kind of stuff maybe maybe some I'd like to I mean I would like I would love to be saying I'm going to Bordeaux and I'm gonna go tour around France and drink a bunch of wine, but hopefully that'll be in the card someday. Right now, it, and the truth really is, think about it: February combine, March free agency, April draft, May mini camp, June mandatory mini camp. It it rolls like it just. The NFL has done a very good job of making this a year long machine, and there's always good content to cover. So maybe this summer we'll see. Don't forget that that schedule release week. That's a big yeah, right schedule there for release. The NFL. Of course, it's huge. Nathan, great stuff, buddy. Appreciate right, thanks. you. Nathan Zagura, Browns analyst. Diana Rossini had a great quote on the Athletic Football Show about Mike Vrabel and why he was shut out in this coaching hire. I'm just going to read the whole thing because it is manna from heaven. We got we got something uh, to say from Nathan's interview with us, but uh, Diana on Mike Vrabel, quote, I don't think there was a fit for him. I don't think he sat in front of any owner who thought that his style was going to work for what they were looking for. I had a GM at the Senior Bowl who mentioned to me Vrabel's physical build that he's a very large human being and he can be very intimidating to people in an organization that are going to be part of these decisions, and that is a factor. Anybody want any like window into toxic masculinity? If Mike Vrabel is too large of a human to have in your organization, and Mike does... He's got the kind of crazy football guy. Like, he is oddly intimidating. Or, sorry, oddly intense, not intimidating. And that can be intimidating. But, like, Mike Vrabel's a pretty damn good head coach. If you're worried about him intimidating you, you got to be some kind of soft. Like, I don't even throw that around a lot, but the idea that, that, that NFL owners look at Mike Vrabel and are like, he's a very large human being. Dude, I, I guess Andy Reid must just be the most a disarming human being on the planet. Andy Reid, large fella. Like Mike Tice uh, used to be Minnesota's coach for for a minute. Mike Tice was like six foot eight, 300 pounds. Pretty intimidating. It's okay. Large people can be unintimidating. I just love the idea that that's not why Mike, like Washington was like, well, Dan Quinn's like 6'1", 230. Me not scared of him is bad. Man, Dan Campbell better never lose his job. I know, right? <laughs> Like, Dan Campbell opened up his press conference. You know what? Detroit's going to win a Super Bowl. Because Detroit has no fear of kneecap biting. Dan Campbell's like six foot five, 260 pounds. He could have been a left tackle. Like, you ever seen that dude's hands? They're gigantic. But that's because Detroit has shown they're not afraid of very large men or very large people. Detroit's going to win a Super Bowl. Think about it. Dan Campbell winning a lot. Andy Reid. The future's for fatties as far as I'm concerned. Dan Campbell is not fat, but I'm a, you get what I'm saying. That is just the best answer. Think about that. Like, uh, hey, uh, hey, Josh Harris, why don't you hire uh, Mike Vrabel? Why don't you hire the more established former head coach instead of Dan Quinn? 
Well, we got in a room with uh, Mike Vrabel, and uh, he's a very large human being. Say that one out loud. They, they wouldn't say it, by the way. They'd be like, ah, oh, we just felt this guy was more in line with our cultural values and what we wanted because he doesn't scare you. That's the that's the <laughs> subtext of that. Good Lord. Nathan Zagura, Browns analyst, was just with us. Um, I suddenly realized where I've gone nowhere in my life is I'm just too big of a guy. That's what it is. That's why I'm not the 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 CEO of Quicken Loans right now, or Rocket Mortgage is what they're called now. Um, it's because it, I don't get their name right, and because I'm just too intimidating. That's what it is. I could be president of the United States now if I just wasn't six foot four and built like a brick. A brick you know what? Ah, Lord, you cursed me with this strong jawline and gigantic shoulders. Me and Mike Vrabel and Andy Reid and Dan Campbell and I don't know. Good amount of good coaches. Now, Nathan was with us, and uh, here's one of the things Nathan had to say in his last bit with us. In my mind, it is a field-stretching wide receiver. It doesn't necessarily have to be a, the number one, but, for example, even if it's a guy like Gabe Davis, who knows Ken Dorsey, knows his system, has been one of the best vertical receivers in the NFL, gives size that we don't have in our room, you know, that would be great. I think that that's, from an offensive standpoint, that's the number one thing to me. And then defensively, whether it's Zadarius coming back or you go and you bring somebody else in, I think getting, you know, another – we still haven't seen that other pass rusher opposite Miles get to, you know, the double-digit sacks. Clowney got close at nine, but I think having that second guy would be a big, big thing. So I really like the way he put that because I actually agree 100% with Nathan about the the Browns' biggest offseason need. You know, lost in the T. Higgins conversation. And listen, if you could get T. Higgins, that'd be great. I am assuming he's going to be franchise tagged. And the question will be whether he has an exclusive tag or non-exclusive tag. If he's non-exclusive tagged, then there's a uh, the ability to 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 basically sign and trade for him, as Nathan put it in his um, interview. It's very unlikely the Bengals would would gift wrap uh, a team that has beat the brakes off them for the most part in the last four years. The the Cleveland Browns uh, potential number one wide receiver, a- and also when you do that, um, other teams are going to be able to offer one or multiple first round picks in a sign-and-trade for T. Higgins. But I think what Nathan got most right, listen, if you could get a number one tomorrow, if one fell in your lap, you'd take it if you're the Cleveland Browns. Everyone would take it, right? Um, Philadelphia had Smith, and they they still went out and traded a first-round pick for A.J. Brown. Um, Miami had Jalen Waddell. They still went out and gave a first-round pick for Tyreek Hill. So if you can get it, that's great. But they are not in, in gigantic supply. So the idea of, man, if we could just find somebody that can hit home runs, I think that is, like, to me, I want one of two things. I want either a speedy gadget player, a la like a Curtis Samuel from Ohio State who's been in Washington the last couple of years, a guy who does have injury concerns which drives down his value, but when he's healthy, the man can hit a home run from any spot on the field. And the, the Browns tried to make Elijah more into that this year. It did not work. I thought Elijah's best football – was when Elijah played wide receiver. So the best way you can maximize Elijah's, like your third wide receiver, by the way, is getting somebody else out there with speed. Like Kansas City guys, they don't really have a good wide receiver core, but from Kadarius Toney to Rice to uh, Valdez Scantling, I forgot at least two other guys that are in that mix who are also like basically the exact same guy. They have a buttload of speed, and that speed just put 
puts pressure on opposing defenses, no matter whether those guys are as good as Tyreek Hill or not. So, like, he mentioned Gabe Davis. And three or two years ago, I thought Gabe Davis was going to be, like, elite-level wide receiver because where he was going with his playmaking was to another level. The thing I like about the idea of Gabe Davis is that's a guy who's not going to cost you an arm and a leg. That's a guy who the perception is now negative because he didn't turn into that guy I was just saying. And that's a guy who does have experience with Ken Dorsey. And so one of the biggest risks you take in free agency is you don't really know these guys. And so there's a significant risk in not knowing who you're bringing in and how they fit in the locker room. Ken Dorsey should know whether Gabe Davis is a good signing or not here. So if he endorses it, I feel comfortable with it. But I, I think what's in, I think when it comes to the offense, we're going to overcomplicate what the Browns need. We're, oh, we just need a number one wide receiver. If you can get it, that's great. Give me a speed guy that can be what Marquise Goodwin was supposed to be this year, opposite of Elijah Moore and Amari Cooper. Because more speed's going to put more. I mean, look at what Baltimore did. Baltimore's offense at its best. Yes, they had Zay Flowers. Yes, OBJ, when he wasn't, you know, getting randomly hurt uh, walking, OBJ was a guy whose speed put pressure on opposing uh, offense or opposing defenses. But like they, they were at their best when you threw in a guy like Keaton Mitchell out of the backfield, who was another kid that ran like a four-two. So more speed, please. Yes, and thank you. I also think you could use some speed on the defensive side of the ball. I think it would make sense in your the middle of your defense. I, I think I think one of the biggest decisions they're going to have to make is on the defensive or on the the middle linebacker spot, and whether continue to bring back like an Anthony Walker. But it was also quite it it, it made me pretty happy to hear Nathan say, "Go find another great pass rusher." Now he he focused on edge rusher. Just if you get one more guy, sorry, one guy. Because Miles is the first guy, but it's another uh, defensive lineman that can get 10-plus sacks. I think you would see that defense next year take an, uh, an even second step, that another higher gear than what they had this year with Jim Schwartz. 216-474-0092. Nathan Zagura said speed wide receiver downfield playmaking threat as the biggest need on offense and another high-level edge rusher on defense where do you think the Browns' needs start this offseason? And is there a number one need? Because I don't think it's the same as the kind of needs you had last year. Joe, welcome to the show, Joe. What you got for us, buddy? Dude, they do need a, uh, I think you said, butt full of speed. Not sure what size butt full they need, but they definitely need speed on the defense because I'll tell you what, Texas smoked them. And I didn't understand maybe they were party in the night before hard but like that's where like that's where the speed was missing to me you know and I watched how aggressive a lot of guys on Baltimore are quick like that too you know mm-hmm. and I mean we were missing Delpit because he has that instinct that he just jumps as soon as you know the ball's hooked that everybody else was in slow motion it seemed like so that was I mean that tight end come on runs 80 yards for a touchdown on it come on. that was bad we're watching the linebacker chase him I agree so yeah I agree with you there. On offense, always smart speed, but I mean, can you catch the ball? Can you run around? All that good stuff like that, and you know. But that defense part, that's huge for us. I think right there, not so much on the line. I, I agree with the other pass rusher, just to help Miles out. Man, I'm tired of him getting beat up like that. Yeah, I mean, I think, and Joe, I appreciate the call, buddy. I think, I think kind of the lost 
part of why Miles has worn down at the end of the seasons is defenses have just been able to clue on him too much. When you're able to throw two two blockers and one or two chips at Miles on every play, there's not a human being on the planet that can can withstand that kind of punishment. And because of the shoulder, I think you saw in the second half of the season or last last five, six games, they also started moving him around less, which I think only allowed defenses to clue in and get shots on him. And, I mean, you just you got to find a way. And I think long-term, I think the way that Jim Schwartz likes to mix up his rotations at edge is going to keep Miles fresh. I think that's good. But I think having another person out there, I mean, I, I think the greatest thing to ever happen to T.J. Watt is Alex Highsmith. And I, those are linebacker edge rushers versus hand-in-the-dirt edge rushers or guys who can do both. But, like, Alex Highsmith means you can't just overcommit attention to T.J. Watt and and beat him up the way you can like Miles in this defense. They've had a bunch of nice players, even even Jadavian at his best, really nice player. Man, if you could get somebody that is, I mean, we're talking Pro Bowl-level pass rusher, that'd be huge for Miles. It's Radio Row week, it's Super Bowl week, and of course, the, this week culminates in the granddaddy of them all, that's a different thing, in the biggest game in the NFL, it's the Chiefs, it's the Niners to talk about it all. We head out to the North Olmstead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline and welcome on Sean Merriman. And Sean joins us courtesy of Bet Online. Check out Bet Online for the most diverse list of over 1,000 Super Bowl prop bets, including MVP, length of the national anthem, close to 100 Taylor Swift related props, first song Usher plays, broadcast odds, game and player stats, and much more. Sean, welcome to the show, buddy. Hey, what's up, my man? How you doing? Well, we're doing well here. We uh, we got the NFL honors this week. We're a little antsy in the pantsy. Four Browns up for those AP awards, those yearly awards. And I'll, I'll start here, man, because you are the uh, edge rusher extraordinaire. Uh, NFL honors announced this week. Is Miles Garrett the rightful defensive player of the year? We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one... They're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. I, I think so, but I, what it's going to come down to, man, to be honest, is, is team record, right? Um and you know t- overall team stuff, and that and that it's and that's unfortunate, right? Because he had a a ridiculously ridiculous year, um, and you know especially early on, I know he's kind of started phasing out a little bit towards the end, man. But I think he had a great year. He's deserving of it. But man, they they look at so many things outside of the individual aspect of it that it's going to be it's going to be hard to watch. Of every. Great edge rusher. We got two Boses. We got Miles. We got TJ Watt. I really like Alex Highsmith, TJ Watt's running mate. I don't think Alex gets enough cred, but like Micah Parsons, if you could, if you could, you could just steal one of them in a DeLorean and take them back to the heyday, 2007, 2008, who would you most want to play with out of the elite edge rushers in the NFL right now? That, that's, a, that's such a tough question because um, I can only look up and see Miles Garrett on the other side of me. Who knows what, how to block that or how to scheme against that? I don't think you can. Um, Nick Bose is great, man. This that's a teaser. Oh, God. The, the, only, the only thing I would say this about Michael Parsons is that 
he's going to require a lot of attention, right? He's so explosive. You can move him around in so many different areas. But then, then again, we've seen Miles Garrett this year rush right down the center and guard, right? I mean, so it's it's tough, man. But I, I would I would probably go with I would probably go with Micah. Yeah, the problem right now with me with Micah is he made a joke about Cleveland at the Pro Bowl this week. So as great as he is, he is now dead to me until he undoes that uh, that injustice. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about the Browns' offense, Sean, and you know what do the Browns need? This what what becomes their number one need? And I've been screaming from the hilltops. I I want the Browns to finally have a guy that can come in here for the next two to three years and give them a if it's not elite, whatever that first level under elite edge rusher, pass rusher, you know, defensive tackle, edge rusher, whatever to, to miles, because he's had guys for a season. And then the second season they were here, they didn't live up to it. So I'm just curious, like how important for miles specifically when you were an edge rusher as well, like how important is it to have another guy up front that can consistently get to the quarterback, you know, 10 sacks kind of a season kind of guy. If if I didn't have a you know a Sean Phillips and Jamal Williams, Luis Castillo, I, we had guys who could get after the pass rush. So we knew every week they were going to come out and double team me. We all had an understanding of that. But when you got guys that can win on the one on one across from you, it changes the landscape, right? Because they ha- they're good enough to to make that play. And so it's so important. I had Sean Phillips, man. Sean Phillips on the other side of me. Also had double digit sack years and so forth, man. And um, that's what Miles needs. Because we know every every week they're going to come out and they're going to key on him. They're going to make that playbook, make sure that Miles Garrett is nowhere close to the football. That's why they started had to rush him down the center and guard this year because he was uh, requiring so much attention. But he needs a, a D tackle, right, who can play a wide three or a tight five and let him rush off the edge on the opposite side of him so they can't slide protection, they can't chip off the edge or fan anything like that. But he needs that. Sean Merriman on the North Homestead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. And Sean joins us courtesy of Bet Online. Sean, I can't figure something out from this year with the Browns. And it wasn't consistent, uh, you know, early in the season. It reared its head late in the season, and it certainly reared its head in the, the playoff game against the Texans. Um, this road, this the road defense was not as ferocious or consistent as it was at, at home. At home, it was a number one defense, truly, by the numbers, number one defense. On the road, it was maybe like a number 13 defense, or number 14 defense, and it kind of caught up with them in the playoffs. I'm curious, like, what's what's the theory on a defense that is elite? I mean, the best of the best in a loaded NFL at home, and then you go on the road and you are maybe, you know, one of the 15 best defenses in the NFL instead. Is there is that something that's quantifiable? Well, I'll tell you this, man. They're making appropriate steps to bring in the right people. Uh, Jock Cesare, who they just brought in as a D-line coach, was my teammate. I played with Jock Cesare. He He's going to establish a mentality up front for those guys. Um, and then we always preach that we're the road warriors. We called ourselves the road warriors, right, because we knew we were everybody going we to play well at home. That's just a gimme. But when you go on the road, it's when you have to be that road warrior, that mentality of going into someone's home right, but sit, sit on their couch, putting your feet up on their table. You have to have that mentality when you go into somebody else's place. It just seemed to me that um, that they, they just started slow. They're a little bit sluggish when they're on the road. They did mentality change like they didn't have the crowd behind you. And as a defensive player, you want to take the crowd out of it. That's the, fu- that's the fun 
about playing defense in general. It's going to someone else's home, getting a big sack, big play turnover, and then having that crowd quiet. And that they, they have to establish that mentality, but they did a great job by bringing in my former team that I played with, Joxy Zara, man. He's going he's gonna to do some good there. We love to hear that. Sean Merriman on the North Homestead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. And, Sean, um, when it comes to uh, your, your home team, the team you built your career with, the L.A. Chargers, they just hired a, a guy we know here uh, from his time up north in Michigan, Jim Harbaugh. Thoughts on that hire, man? I thought it was the uh, the best move they could have made. And quite frankly, it's the only move, right? Because they were getting so much media pressure, fan pressure. Uh, I, I thought that that was the correct way to make a jump from the hire they just had in Brandon Staley. And this is not a shot at Brandon Staley at all, but we also seen towards the end of his tenure that he just wasn't ready to be a head coach. He just wasn't. Um, so this is a drastic change in what was there before. Uh, you see this newfound excitement through the fans and people can't wait to go to the games and what's going to happen and, you know, uh, Hobart's famous quotes and things. You know, just there's a lot of excitement around the organization right now, and they've been missing that the last couple of years. So uh, it's going to be interesting, but they've loaded that staff up to, to, to make a run with that talent they have on that team this year. All right, it is uh, Super Bowl 58 later this week in Las Vegas. Um, I, I just Where are you leaning early on here? Look, I think um... – you know, obviously being in the, in the division, I will always be a Chiefs hater, right? I think that, that part of me will always be. But you can't knock how great they are. And they haven't, they're not the same team as they once were. They're not the same team they were last year. They're not as dominant. They found a different way to win and get back there again. So it's hard to go against them. I'm, I'm going Chiefs. Um, you know, my, my heart is telling me to go with the 49ers, but my brain is saying, you know what, these guys don't know how to lose, Right. Uh, they do all the, all the right things. They don't make mistakes like the Ravens did towards that game and taunting and penalties. They're not doing any of that. So they, they, don't, they know how to win in big games. And, you know, it's up to the 49ers to see if Brock Purdy can push them through. But I'm going with the Chiefs, man. It's hard to go against those guys. This is the first Super Bowl in Vegas. You think this is a good idea for the NFL? Well, other than the weather being crappy here, <laughs> um, I, I think it's uh, – it's a great idea. A lot of people are going to go home with, you know, have to, uh, you know, sell their mortgage, their house, and stuff like that if they sit at these tables too long. But um, I think for the city, man, so much is coming here to to Vegas. So much, so many things going on. I think it's become the entertainment capital of the world, practically. Um, so yeah, I think I think that they got a little taste of it with the draft. They got a lot of the taste with the F one and some of the other bigger events. So it's it's right for a Super Bowl to be here. I got to know what's the latest with Lights Out, your uh, your fight promotion there, bud. Yeah, we, we got a huge event coming up February 16th, just a week after the Super Bowl at Long Beach, California. We'll be live on Football TV, Football Sports. Um, this is our biggest and most explosive car we've had in the history of the company. In fact, we're 70% sold out, you know, being a couple of weeks out from the fight, which is crazy because we normally don't sell out to the week of. Uh, so it's, it's, this is awesome, man. But uh, Lights Out Extreme Fight 14th, February 16th, live on Football TV, Football Sports. All right. Uh, outside of Jim Harbaugh, real quick, who is your favorite head coaching hire this cycle? Uh, my favorite head coaching hire is the one that didn't get hired. Actually, is it, Mike Vrabel. That I mean, you know, it's a lot of lot of really good coaches. I get um, a lot of we're going to find out with with, uh, with with Seattle coming. You know, coming from the Ravens. Um, I, I'd like some D coordinator Zach Orr moving up from you know linebackers coach and did a D coordinator job with the Ravens. Uh, but man, my my favorite is the one that didn't get hired. It's it's Mike Vrabel. I I don't understand that. I don't understand how he's still on the street. Didn't, you know, nothing against all the other coaches got hired. But man, that's that's um, 
pretty uh, pretty interesting. He's still on the street right now. Sean, you got to look up Diana Rossini's uh, report on why Mike didn't get hired. You're going to laugh as hard as I did. Sean, be well, buddy. I know you got to go. We appreciate you. You got it. Thanks for having me. And Sean joins us courtesy of Bet Online. Sean Merriman there. A little bit of Cavs news, by the way. Two things going on out there. One, there is a uh, a report by Michael Scotto, NBA reporter, saying Isaac Okoro is a name to watch at the uh, trade deadline. Um, I think I think this might be a little late in the the rotation for that. I think Isaac's got a pretty important role right now, but that's one thing to pay attention to. And then. Uh, a Woj three-point bomb, uh, as Woj tweeted out here in the last 15 minutes, uh, Cleveland Cavaliers all-star guard Donovan Mitchell plans to participate in the three-point contest on Saturday night in Indianapolis, sources tell ESPN. Um, I love this. I just I got to be honest with you. I think we're all in agreement. Uh, the Elam ending has made the game more interesting. It's still... It's still a game that nobody plays enough defense to make it interesting in. And it's just never, you're never going to incentivize these players to make the All-Star game worth it. There's a lot of events around the All-Star weekend that make me roll my eyes. Um, I don't know if they're bringing back the fashion show, but the fashion show is one of the things that makes me roll my eyes. Uh, The three-point contest is still the GOAT. The dunk competition has its years here and there, but... Of all the competitions, I actually do like the um, the rookies versus the second-year players. I do like that game. But when it comes to just pound for pound almost every year, must-watch TV, the three-point contest is it. So the idea that Donovan, who two years ago, everybody was still, when they Cavs traded for him, I don't think he shoots threes well enough. The idea that he's changed the perception about him, him enough, where now he's part of the three-point uh, contest, I think that's really cool. So... If you missed it over the weekend, Donovan, three-point shots, and also shots at the face of Zach Collins. I want to get into the the fight that was this weekend in a bit. But are we getting greedy with the Cavaliers? I'm just asking. I'm just asking a question. doesn't mean we are. I think you guys know. Um, I like other opinions, especially ones I hadn't previous thought of. I like things that challenge my perception. But with Joel Embiid getting hurt over the weekend, it, it brings back a, a conversation. Uh, sorry, he got hurt late last week, and then it, it came down in the last 24 hours that he needs knee surgery. It is it is uncertain whether he'll be back this year. And so you're kind of seeing, it, when he was on the court, you were seeing a free fall from the 76ers, and the Bucks have struggled. Um, Doc Rivers has not made an immediate change or impact for the positive in Milwaukee. And now the Cavs are in the third spot in the Eastern Conference. And I will say just kudos to them because the hottest te- the perception is the hottest team in the NBA is the New York Knicks because they made the big sexy trade getting Ananobi, OG Ananobi from Toronto. Um, and they're the team that gets talked more about than the Cavs because they play in New York. And I, I do think like the Knicks are like the, the little engine that could but never does. I think there's I think there are people who knowing that the Knicks have won two championships in franchise history and it's been about 50 years since their last one I can understand why people root for the Knicks beyond they're, they're just in and when I say people I mean the media has interest in that storyline but I thought it was interesting that the Knicks the alleged hottest team in the Eastern Conference they lost this weekend Cavs get the win over San Antonio 
and all of a sudden the Cavs are the third seed in the Eastern Conference. So when I say, are we getting greedy? The Embiid conversation, moving to three in the Eastern Conference, where I uh, even the Bucks thing, where I, I, I see, and by the way, you're now a half a half game uh, behind the Milwaukee Bucks. I want to make sure we point that out. Where I think we might be getting greedy is people who a top four finish is like now the expectation. And and I think I I actually think this sets up really well for them to be a top four seed again. But like, I, just in kind of reading the tea leaves after the game, after the Knicks loss, was well the Cavs. I mean, why why can't they be the number one seed? And it'd be really cool if they were. But like, is my I do care about the seeding, and the seeding does matter. Like the once you get beyond a top four seed. The reason it matters is what happens in the second round of the playoffs. So the difference between between being the two seed and the, the four seed is significant. The problem is I still have doubts about the team going into the playoffs. So, I mean, yeah, hypothetically, man, it'd be really cool if the Cavs were the two seed or hell, if they made a run at Boston and got the one seed, and that means that in every Every potential round, you'd be the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. That'd be really cool. But aren't we all just waiting to see if the Cavs can do something in the playoffs? Because I, you know, I, I was accused last week when I was talking about different things going on with the Cavs. I was accused of having PTSD from the playoffs last year. You don't? Like, guys, the Cavs had home court advantage. Guys, the, the Cavs had Donovan Mitchell, the best player in the series. The Cavs had a fair amount of advantages just built in. Now, they did have a, a, some some uh, weakness on the roster in the lack of three-point shooting. They did have um, – th- they do have those, those difficult issues between your guards and some of the overlap in their skills and their bigs, and it was apparent that the, that the Cavs weren't ready for the playoffs last year. But, like, at this point – it's not that I won't get excited about a one or a two or a three or a four seed. It's just any time that I say, oh, man, the Cavs locked in this. I'll be thinking in the back of my head, what are they going to do with it? So, like, if you said, well, do you really want the two seed? Yeah, hypothetically I do. But am I a little afraid that the same thing is going to happen this year? Like, am I, am I a little afraid? And I think the Cavs are better positioned than they were last year. I think their roster is deeper. But, like, the questions that remain for the Cavs are still potent. It is, can you win if Evan Mobley isn't your second or first best player? Like, can you make a deep playoff run if Evan isn't a, you know, maybe your best player or second best player? I don't know. I really don't. Can you win if your guards are your best players? I don't know. Can J.B. Bickerstaff... Put you in a position to win. I'm probably most skeptical of that than I am anything else. So it'd be really cool if the Cavs got a number one seed. And it'd be really cool if they got a two seed. Or if they just finished better in a better spot than they were last year. Simply because, guys, this year the Eastern Conference is a much more difficult conference. And you got teams where, man, if you can avoid the Knicks first round, that team's also better than last year. If you can avoid um, Indianapolis, that first round, 
And they might have some of the problems you had. Like, they're going to be a first-time playoff team with Halliburton and Siakam and all these guys. But, like, that pace of play is going to be tough for you to sustain. If you could avoid Milwaukee or Boston in that first round, that'd be great. But no matter who, the, the Cavs could have the, the you know, the, the easiest piece of cake in that first round series. And my doubts are still going to be more. Can they prove to us that they belong in the playoffs? Can they, and I'm, I'm not trying to steal a, a parlance from the morning show, but can they flip the switch when, when it's necessary? Because they look like a playoff team in January. They look like a playoff team in March. They look like a playoff team in April. Until April went from regular season April to the postseason. 216-474-0092. So I just, there's a part of me that worries when we start to go, oh, they could get the two seed. They could. They could. It's a possibility. But I don't know there's anything they can show me in the regular season that is going to make me feel certain the end result in the postseason is different. Well, yeah, they're going to be deeper. Guys that got pushed around in the playoffs. They don't have somebody that's going to stop them from getting pushed around. Well, okay, but but you know maybe they can do more to tr- they can try more things. Okay, well your head coach loves to try things in January, and the sphincter tightens when you get late in the season. And like I mean, I thought what was it when was it the night that Darius came back that Sam Merrill got seven minutes, or was that the night that Evan came back? What I think it was the night that uh, Darius. Okay, so when Darius comes back, Sam got seven minutes and was a non-factor. Now, the next two games, you got to see more of Sam, and I think he I think he gave you double-digit performances in both games. But, like, talent matters, yeah. So do how do you fit together, so do your culture, and you you need guys that have been there before. Donovan's been there before, but hasn't been to a conference championship round. You know, like, Jarrett has been there before, but he had been there before last year and it didn't matter. So, like, I, I get it if you're focused on a top four seed or a top two seed. You're not wrong. It's just there's nothing that can happen before mid-April that's going to make me think, okay, this team is ready to win a win a first-round series until they win a first-round series. The opportunity for the Cavs. Joel Embiid could be done for the year, although it is uncertain if he will be. The Bucks continue to uh, flounder here as they lost this last uh, their last game. The, the Cavs are now a half game off the Bucks, which would, if the Cavs were to win tonight and the Bucks were to lose their next game, the Cavs would be the two seed in the Eastern Conference. And, oh, by the way, Miami has been a massive disappointment this year. They traded for Terry Rozier. That has not made a difference as of yet. I have more takes on Miami than I than I care to admit right now. But the point is... It, there, there is. There's an element of the Eastern Conference that is, it's as tough as it's been, but you also have a couple teams that were used to running the East taking a step back, and so for teams like the Cavs, for teams like the Knicks, for teams like the Pacers, for teams like the Magic, that's an opportunity to take a step forward. And you know, last year you took a step forward in in an Eastern Conference that was a little bit weaker than we thought it was going to be. And then you went to the playoffs and got embarrassed. And as much as we'd like to put last year in the rearview mirror, it's still a valid conversation. Because a lot of the guys who lost that series, it's not that you lost. It's in a lot of those games you didn't score enough offense. You might have taken care of that this last offseason. 
but you got pushed around, your bigs got pushed around, and your guards disappeared on, on any given game. And your head coach is maybe your biggest question mark. So I'm a little split on whether this year is going to be different or not. I'm hopeful. I'm actually enjoying what they're doing right now. I mean, Donovan is just Donovan's just kind of got everything going for him and just everything seems to be working and clicking for him. And I actually think Donovan's proving. You know, we've had the conversation, can Donovan be the best player on a championship team? If Donovan continues to pass the way he is, the way he does and shoot the way he has, I know he's not I know he's an undersized guard and that's always going to be a conversation point, but like guys, he's kind of doing things people said he couldn't do. And and I think Donovan from the the point spot is particularly lethal, even if that's not his spot in Cleveland as of right now. But 216-474-0092. The, the simplest way to ask this is are you convinced this year will go differently for the Cavs? Because every time I want to get excited about a two seed, but every time I just think back to last year and and how things went and and it really was a disaster to be the four seed, have home court advantage, and get run out of the gym for those five nights. Heath, I know you've been burning on this one. What you got, bud? Yeah, I was just going to say, I know they've won 13 of 14. It's just really hard for me, no matter how much regular season success you have, mm-hmm. knowing that you haven't had your, your be- the better part of your roster for most of the season, I just I feel like I need to see more. And then even when I see more, I feel like I'm going to need to see more than that. Like yeah. in the playoffs, I, f- I feel like I'm not going to necessarily 100% buy in until I actually see it happen in the playoffs. I, I just, I, I think you're probably on the right side of this. Like, I I, I, I kind of feel like I'm in the middle, be- and I'm not riding the fence on this, like, because I, I am, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical they can do this. And I'm a little concerned, because if you have another early round exit in the playoffs where you're embarrassed, not only is the whole conversation about Donovan's future, is that, or signing an extension when he can this offseason, not only is that a moot point, I mean, what's to say Donovan just doesn't come out and go, man, it's been two years here. We we haven't really made any headway, and I'm out. I, I don't think you can put it past. that. Them's the, that's the stakes. The stakes feel higher this year in the postseason than they do last year. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The other part of it as a fan is, are you sitting here thinking, even if they win a playoff series, it doesn't mean anything guaranteed towards the future with Donovan. Yeah. So, like, you could experience a su- this success this year, have a playoff win, and – in the back of your head, you're thinking, okay, but what does this mean for him? Well, like, it almost feels like, I don't want to say an audition, but it does feel like the Cavs are still auditioning for Donovan. And specifically, like the guys that are auditioning him would be auditioning for him in the playoffs are J.B. Bickerstaff. Uh, I think Darius to some degree. I think Evan. I think Jared's just a good veteran. Like, I, I don't I don't know that Donovan could have any problems with with Jarrett, other than he kind of disappeared in the playoffs last year, but like Jarrett's Jarrett. Jarrett's probably the second, the guy that Donovan can trust the most of the veterans in the starting lineup. But like, yeah, I, I think everybody, all the other key figures for the Cavs are auditioning for the Cavs and Donovan. If Donovan says, hey, man, I love it here, I'd love to sign that extension, but I need more help around me. Because if Donovan says that, the paradigm internally completely shifts for the Cavaliers. There's, like, I've even seen it with Cavs fans. Cavs fans who two years ago said they wouldn't trade Darius for Donovan, and now people say, there's the, some of those same people are saying, uh, you need to trade Darius so you can maximize Donovan. That's, I mean, 
that's a pretty stark difference from where we were two years ago. And I think even the narrative on, on like Evan versus Jared is evened out more than it was. Let's go with Chad. Welcome to the show, Chad. Hey, thanks. Yeah. I think it scares the hell out of me is, is our, our X's and O's from a coaching standpoint. Yeah. I mean, there's just no leadership and he's still figuring out these lineups and I get that we've had injuries, but to see Dean Wade play 20 minutes a game and go zero points every single game makes no sense when you got a Levert or you got Merrill sitting on the bench getting seven minutes. He still hasn't figured out a lineup. And when you watch this team during the timeouts, look at the opposite bench and look at those, those players surrounded around their coach and then look at our players around the coach that we have. You don't have the leadership there, and that scares me. And Thibodeau's going to eat his lunch again in the playoffs. Chad, I think a lot of what you're saying, uh, those are fair concerns, and I think of your call. Um, right now is when I want JB to be trying all that stuff out. Like I, The one point that I'll disagree with you, listen, I still have my, my playoff concerns, whether JB's going to run a deep enough bench. And for me, the rotation stuff, not just about, you know, has he tried enough lineups in the regular season, it's how quickly you have to cycle through them. Because on any given night, like the, I, I listen, I know he, I think he's in Washington now. Who is the ba- who's the backup forward that we were all going crazy for? Uh, the wing player that that we were like, why hasn't he gone to him by game four? That, that you can tell how great of a player he was. He's a three and D player. I didn't know he's in Boston. He's in Boston. Lamar Stevens. Lamar Stevens. So it wasn't really about Lamar Stevens. It's about you don't know in that in that moment what's going to spark for you. And the whole point of, of lineups and having tried every lineup in the regular season is so you can go, I don't know that this is going to work, but here's the reason why I do think it's going to work, and we're going to give this uh, a, a three-minute stretch here in the first round of the playoffs to see if we can count on this rotation in this matchup for this reason. And he has been, he being J.B. Bickerstaff, has been way too beholden to, now i got a seven-man rotation. This year, that can't be. You, you are 10 deep this year. If you make a trade at the deadline, you might be 11 deep this year, depending on what they do. I think the biggest concern, the thing I don't think is changing, is the out of, is the out of timeout actions. I think JB is really bad at drawing up plays and using the right um, out of timeout actions. I just I think that and that that will kill you in the playoffs. Maybe not in the first round, maybe not in the second round, but when you get into a spot where the other coach is really good at that, JB will get exposed. And I don't think you just suddenly get better than that. You either hire somebody to do it for you, hire an X's and O's guy, hire somebody who is, specializes in kind of game management situations, or you just lose that way in the playoffs. Real quick, Jeff, welcome to the show, Jeff. Hey, first time, long time. Ah, well, appreciate it, buddy. Welcome to the show. Hey, quick question. I, I'm not the biggest basketball fan, but, you know, we're talking about last year's series with the Knicks, but didn't, did, did, didn't the Knicks, handle us in the regular season so what made us think going into the postseason we'd be able to move past them i mean i understand the point i will say like um it's such even if you could play the knicks the final game of the regular season and then play them in the first game of the postseason and they're going to be completely different games and and maybe that's an extreme case but like if your last game against the knicks was game 63 and thank you for the call there jeff and maybe farting into the microphone. I don't know what that was. But uh, but no, we appreciate the call, bud. But I just think it's a completely different game. 
Like back when we would play the the Warriors for the last time, and you'd play them in like March. And granted, you weren't seeing them to the NBA Finals. The games and the teams are completely different teams. So I get the point, but like plenty of teams. I mean, as a matter of fact, the Cavs actually had a lot of regular season success against upper the upper seeds in the East. They probably would have gotten smoked by the Bucks last year in the playoffs, although they got smoked. They probably have been smoked by the, the Heat as well. Before the end of the show, I want to play what I thought was the best answer Ken Dorsey had to say because it wasn't just the PRified answer that I think we're used to from Kevin. And that's I'm, I've compared them twice. I'm not trying to bash Kevin. If anything, I just want to set Kevin free. I just want Kevin to understand that press conferences don't have to be as as uptight as they feel. If you if you listen to the I mean Kevin I think spoke for 2 minutes today and it sounded as if there was some sort of torture device that if he said the wrong word it was like speed. If he went if he went below 55 mile an hour the bomb was going to explode. Like Kev, it's okay buddy. It's just press conferences. But I do feel like the Browns put a lot of pressure on external messaging. And I and listen, on one hand, I, I remember the days of the Sunday morning blues where you'd wake up and you never knew which Sunday it was going to be. But usually at least one Sunday of the final six Sundays in an NFL season, it would be Jimmy Haslam is starting to explore the coaching market. It would be um, Hugh Jackson wanted A.J. McCarron, but uh, a faulty fax machine or a faulty person uh, operating the fax machine in the front office blocked the trade, at which, by the way, was the smartest thing that ever happened because A.J. McCarron was, in fact, roasted dog butt in terms of a starter, fine backup. But, like, I understand that there are a lot of people who just feel like, guys, we're not dysfunctional anymore. Why does it matter? Well, just because you aren't the most dysfunctional organization in the NFL – doesn't mean that there aren't, I don't even want to say dysfunction, because that's such a heavy word. We, it means something totally different to us. But it doesn't mean that you're where the organization should inevitably be. And I thought it was interesting. I thought it was interesting that Albert Breer, who joins us every single Thursday at 520, took crap from Browns fans when he was on his uh, NBC uh, uh, New England uh, hit talking about the perception and, and the reports and the thought that it wasn't just Kevin Stefanski's decision to let go of Alex Van Pelt, who's now been hired as the Patriots OC. The reason he was let go in Cleveland was because ownership and Paul D. Podesta, not Kevin Stefanski, ownership and Paul D. Podesta were frustrated with the progress Deshaun Watson had made. I don't think that they really, truly, the people who made that decision really, truly knew his value to that staff. Other people on that staff, not so much Kevin, but people below him, were floored when they fired him for two reasons. Number one, how do you fire the offensive coordinator after you just won 11 games (laughs) with four different quarterbacks, with your fourth and fifth tackles, without Nick Chubb. He was able to help build an offense that was able to sustain. So there's that, like that I think is one reason why people there were floored that he got fired. The other one I think is is the real key though. He was the glue of that staff. Kevin, if you know him, he's a great guy. He's not the most outgoing guy. His personality is very dry. He's got a good sense of humor, but he's not like this outwardly gregarious guy. Alex was the one that held that staff together. When guys were coming out, when guys were going in, he is a guy who was a unifying force in that building. I thought it was wild that Browns fans were furious that that Albert would be saying this 
up north, always being a patriot stooge. Uh, is that because you didn't hear what you wanted to hear? Because, I mean, Albert has said it. There are other people have pointed to the perception is, right or wrong, that it wasn't Kevin Stefanski's decision to fire Alex Van Pelt. And it does matter. Power dynamics do matter. Listen, organizations don't come out and say, hey, guys, we're dysfunctional. Hey, guys, uh, we have too many cooks in the kitchen. Hey, guys, our owner is still somebody that meddles a little bit. So I do think that is every uh, that that bit of sound there is something that every Browns fan needs to hear. And it's something you need to file away. Because I'll be honest with you, and I, I think I've said this now twice in the show today, but it's a point that I think really bears um, bears emphasis. Scapegoating is what middle-of-the-road or bad organizations do. And four straight years, I can sell you that the Browns have scapegoated somebody. So last year, I'm oh, sorry, let's go back to uh, coming off 2021. You win eight games. Baker's dressing like the bad guys from Home Alone and Home Alone 2. Uh, he's got a mustache and then he has no facial hair. Uh, OBJ's dad's out on social media doing his thing. And in season, they rightfully let go of OBJ when they should have just traded him or cut him in the in the preseason or in the offseason. But then at the, the end of the season, there's the adult in the room conversation. Inevitably, you upgraded on on Baker. There's nobody in the NFL who at that point wouldn't have taken Deshaun Watson over Baker Mayfield. But the Browns really went into that in a situation where they almost didn't upgrade. If not for guaranteeing $230 million, guys, they were going to have to turn Baker Mayfield into like uh, Case Keenum. Or they were going to have to turn Baker Mayfield into Carson Wentz. And they got lucky that all of a sudden Jimmy said, let's do the $230 million thing. A big reason on, I, I think Baker was scapegoated. And they got lucky that they turned it into somebody that everybody agreed was a was an upgrade. Um, last year, yeah, Joe Woods wasn't a great defensive coordinator. Mike Prefer wasn't a great special teams player. But after winning eight games, those guys got scapegoated. They were kind of blamed for, and when, you, when I say scapegoated, I mean, look at kind of the way it was pushed out there. Those guys were kind of held accountable for the failure. So in this case, like the Baker thing, guys, I think Baker was a pain in the ass. I think that mattered a lot more than he didn't play well enough in 2021 because he was hurt. Everybody knew he was hurt. Everybody knew that factored in. But like you could at least say about Joe Woods and Mike Prefer, well, look at their special teams units. Look at their defensive unit. It makes sense. This year, Alex Van Pelt was scapegoated. If, if Ken Dorsey comes in, and they run a very similar offense next year. Because remember, they were supposed to run a totally different offense. AVP and Kevin were cooking up in the lab, and they're working together. It's a whole new offense. It was not a whole new offense this year. So if it's the same offense next year with Ken Dorsey and Kevin Stefanski, that's for, and, and Kevin calls the plays, it's further evidence that they got scapegoated. And here's the other reason I'm going to use that phrase, is it wasn't Kevin's decision. Who makes the decision matters. Four years in, Paul D. Podesta should not have some sort of Svengalian or uh, Jafar from uh, Aladdin pull over uh, the, the king, a.k.a. Jimmy Haslam. He shouldn't. 
because the whole point of having that guy was to establish an organizational culture and make sure that everybody kind of fell under the 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 right mode of operation. And that after four years, the ideal move for somebody in that position of power is you build the culture and then eventually you kind of, over time, you, your hands kind of go off a little bit. Who in the hell thinks it's Alex Van Pelt's fault that Deshaun Watson didn't meet his ceiling this year? Seriously. Like, is there anybody, logically, anybody think AVP is the reason this didn't work out? And listen, I, I have, I don't like the offense they threw out there with Deshaun for most of the time Deshaun was on the field. It was five games. So even though I looked at it and said, where were the spreads? Where were the RPOs? Where were the, you know, wh- why, why are we constantly focusing on on-time scheduled throws? Why are we constantly having him under center when Nick Chubb's not out there, which is another big question. Like, why are we doing things this way? Kevin Stefanski is the offensive head coach. And I get it. This is one of those scenarios where you can't fire Kevin Stefanski. That doesn't mean you have to go looking to fire somebody else. And I think the Browns have done one of the a, a very tough thing. I was going to call it one of the toughest things. I don't think it's one of the tough. I, I think it's just a tough thing. To go from the laughing stock of the NFL to go from one of the bottom five teams consistently in the NFL to being somewhere in the middle, That is a, that is a jump you have to make. But the jump the Browns are trying to make next is a much tougher jump because that jump is going from, let's say, the 12th best organization. And by the way, this is not uh, just predicated on where did you finish in the standings. This is about your ability to win every single year. This is about perception of your organization a decade at a time. And for two two years, or what it? Two decades, the Browns were perceived to be one of the five worst franchises in the NFL. Now, I think if you ask people, if you said, all right, organizational power rankings on how you feel about their next five years, I bet you the Browns would be somewhere in the lower teens, 13th, 14th, 15th. But the usual players, Pittsburgh's ahead of them. The usual players, Baltimore's ahead of them. San Francisco is ahead of them. Um... The Chiefs are probably number one in the NFL because of Mahomes and what they've done the last six years. You can go through and you can find who people will agree are top 10 organizations. That ain't the same thing as who are the top 10 teams on any given year. Because that because talent changes, right? But culture is the thing that tends to prevail in the difference between uh, two good years and four years and Pittsburgh not having a losing season since I want to say the 90s. Uh, maybe maybe going all the way back to like the final one or two years before that last Bill Cowher team took off. So teams don't admit, organizations don't, don't admit if they're dysfunctional. And scapegoating is unacceptable. And this next step from the Browns, guys, Paul D. Podesta should not be firing assistant coaches nor should Jimmy Haslam. And now the owner thing, you'll say, and rightfully so, well, other owners have done that. Yeah, in this case, Jimmy Haslam should not. I made the case earlier in the show that the next five years, if you're really going to re-sign, if you're really going to re-sign Kevin and Andrew Barry, the next five-year plan, if the first five-year plan was we got to stop being the organization 
that has what happened with the Freddie Kitchens. And we got to stop being the organization that has a new head coach every two to three years. The next five-year plan should be making sure that Kevin Stefanski is in charge of, of uh, foot, uh, head coaching matters and that Andrew Barry should be in charge of GM matters. And that that should almost be, I, I get, collaboration, collaboration. Okay, Vanilla Ice, I get it. Stop collaborating and listen. Here's the problem. At some point, you know, because I had somebody earlier on the show say, uh, I think it was Dave, I can actually pull it up right here, at Nick Wilson says, say, do you really think Barry would hang around if he was that micromanaged? Yes. There are 32 jobs in the NFL at the GM spot. And to this point, Andrew has not done enough like John Dorsey did to get a second GM job. He is widely respected. People like him. People think a lot of him. But two winning seasons in four years for a GM, it's probably not enough to get that next job. So when you invite guys in, both Stefanski and Barry, they're good enough to prove that they're pretty decent at their job, but they haven't accomplished enough to have earned the kind of power in another job. So this is a moment where I don't understand why Paul D. Podesta is pulling the trigger on assistant coaches. I don't understand why Jimmy Haslam is reaching down from uh, Brattenall to go ahead and and do this for his head coach. I have doubts. Listen, if if you don't win with Deshaun this year, is it probably Kevin that could be the next guy that scapegoated? Yes. But I got to say, to hear D. Podesta and ownership fired AVP because of frustration with Deshaun Watson's development, that is not what a good organization does. And if the Browns really want to crack the top 10, if they really want to be seen in the same lot league with Pittsburgh and Baltimore, this kind of stuff has to stop happening because these decisions should be Kevin Stefanski's. They should be Andrew Barry's and not some dude living in San Diego who we periodically get to see in the building. Major on Twitter, or Major Cap on Twitter saying, is this really a scapegoat thing or just moving on? Well, I would say when it's not the head coach making the decision, when it's uh, somebody who isn't and hasn't been, and nor will he ever be a head coach in the NFL making the decision, yeah, I would say a not football guy making that decision screams of a scapegoating. It's it's not it was not Alex Van Pelt's fault that Deshaun Watson has struggled in Cleveland to this point. We, we had my my twin daughter's birthday party finally. It, we ended up having we 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 had it or we we're gonna have it mid January when their birthday actually is, and then three of us, including one of the twins, got ridiculously sick. So we finally made good because it was during the Pro Bowl games. And nobody's going to skip a kid's birthday party for the Pro Bowl games as if maybe it was like the NFL playoffs. So it worked out really well. But my niece was two years old and she is the spitting image of my uh, my sister. And my, my sister was a hellion. Loud, dramatic, bossy, temper tantrum st- stricken. She still is sometimes. But this kid is like spitting image of my my older sister. And in the middle of the, the day, the dog had been up in our room because he's still kind of getting used to dealing with the amount of people that we have at parties. And all of a sudden, he was downstairs. And I kind of let him out, put him on his lead. I was like, oh, that was weird. I wonder which kid opened the door. And about 10 minutes passed, and we couldn't find my 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 two-year-old niece. And, we, you know, we were like worried that maybe she went downstairs and maybe fell. 
messing around with stuff. Like, okay, did she go outside? Like, you just never, like, man, two-year-olds are sneaky little so-and-sos. And so we all kind of rush around. Finally, Vanessa calls down. I found her, and I run upstairs, and this kid take, had taken off her shirt. She had climbed into my bed, on my side of the bed, put my uh, my my uh, my blanket about halfway up her belly, turned on the TV, and was in the midst of eating in the most sloppy way a cupcake from the party. Just just acted like it was her crib, man. And and so we we go there, and there's just crumbs everywhere, all over the top of my blanket. She's just she's got you know icing everywhere and it was honestly I wasn't even mad it was just cute as hell I was relieved she was good until last night I went to bed I was tired it was a big weekend I went to bed last night and I threw back the covers didn't think anything of it because I'd already cleaned off the top of my my blanket and I get in and not only do I feel that she clearly had had maybe covered up the 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 crumbs mess that she had had on her person with my blanket there were crumbs everywhere. She had also maybe needed a diaper change. It was just wet diaper in the middle of my chest. And I went from thinking that was the cutest story in the world to wanting to drive an hour to kick that kid's ass at about 9 o'clock at night. 216-474-0092. Uh, this is for parents. It's for parents, not for members of NAMBLA. Kids parties, yay or nay. Actually, I really don't mind them anymore. But man, are they loud. And uh, I, I wanted to get, listen, I have questions about Ken Dorsey. I wonder, and I worry sometimes that, that, the, inter, that the dynamics of the Browns organization could hold back the Browns from being the team that I think they can be. I think talent-wise, and I think head coach and, and GM-wise, I think the Browns have everything they need to go on a 5-7-10 to seven to ten year run of winning every single year. And that's how you get to to the peak part and the peak perception around the NFL. But while I have those concerns, may I at least give Ken Dorsey some significant credit here. He was asked about uh, Deshaun Watson saying he wasn't a fan of scripted plays. Here was Ken's answer. One, as a coach and player relations, there's some things that are, are non-negotiables, you know, where it's like, look, this is the way we're doing it, you know, and I understand, like, if you, there might be some pushback, but this will help us, at the end of the day, this will help us win football games. And then there's some things that, you know, you communicate with them, and uh, what are you comfortable with? Where are you at with this, you know? Because there's the factor, yes, with uh, if he feels comfortable with it, but then there's also a whole offense you got to consider with that stuff as well. So, you know, there's some things that we'll go through and say, hey, you know, if you're not comfortable we won't do it that way you know or there's some things that hey look this will help us be better on offense we will do it this way but there's conversations to be had with in that regard down the line in terms of that we're not quite there yet you know there'll definitely be conversations of things like that down the line but you know that's step 75 or so and we're on step five you know so but yeah I mean obviously if it's something that he has a conviction about then we'll talk about it and make sure we're doing the right thing for us as an offense moving forward and obviously a key part of the offense is the quarterback playing at a high level. So you guys always ask, what can Kevin say? What can any head coach say that passes the mustard? That's it. Right there. All right? He starts off kind of as a Tommy truck nuts, which which is, yeah, there's some non-negotiables. And he leads you to believe that might be scripted plays. And then he kind of goes into the idea of what this kind of looks like. And in every situation, it, 
it's different. But I think there are Browns fans who think, well, Deshaun hasn't earned the right to, to have a say in X, Y, and Z. And the reality is, given his contract, yes, he has. And given his play is every single year in Houston, he has. So even though you haven't seen it on the field, like there is this this push and pull of what Deshaun's going to be comfortable with, what Ken likes, what Kevin likes. And so I think it's really important to hear an answer that says, hey, man, there are things we can't change. There are things we might be willing to change, and there are things we absolutely can change. And if the scripting thing is one of those things, well, the, the, the push and pull might be that Deshaun struggles more on the first offensive drive than Joe Flacco did or Baker Mayfield did. That's a decision the coach, the coaching staff has to listen to. But I thought that was by far my favorite answer by Ken Dorsey earlier today because I, I thought it was the perfect blend of honesty and him also still saying very little about the actual decision on whether they'll script plays or not. Maybe my favorite Donovan Mitchell moment so far, the time that we've had Donovan, came this weekend against the Spurs, where Zach Collins of the Spurs, who turned into Kenley Olenek overnight, um, set, a, set a pick on Donovan, and at the end of the pick, kind of threw some sort of judo move, like kind of threw hands at Donovan. And I, I got to be honest with you, what I loved about it from Donovan's perspective was that Donovan didn't wait for the play to be over. A lot of times, you know, guys will wait for the action to finish and then they'll go in institute or they'll wait for like a whistle or they'll wait for a foul. Donovan did not wait for a damn thing. Donovan, this, Zach Collins kind of put his hands up in Donovan's face as he was kind of knocking him away. And Donovan just snapped. And I actually think, I'm assuming it was something that Donovan said that got Donovan thrown out. He shouldn't have been thrown out. And after the game... Uh, Zach Collins of the Spurs kind of admitted that it wasn't on Donovan that that, that started this fight. Yeah, he went up for a layup a few like a play or two before, and I was in I was guarding him. I was where I was supposed to be. He went up and clocked me with that elbow. I didn't like it, so I came down and hit him back. Coach Bakerstaff said it was on his end. It was a dirty play. I know he's going to look after his guy and, and, and take his guy's side, obviously. But in terms of the way him characterizing it as dirty, probably was worth the fine, I guess. Yeah. You know what? Yeah, this is the rare time where I love this look for Donovan because, I mean, Zach Collins is a seven-footer. He's real thin, but, like, Zach Collins has some advantages over Donovan. So I love watching Donovan go toe-to-toe and and lose his cool a little bit. And I kind of respect the answer from Zach Collins being like, it was a dirty play and it was worth the fine because I was being salty about something that happened a couple plays ago. But I, I'd had this thought. I, I, there's one thing that I've done with Donovan that I have to stop doing. I really have to stop doing it. Because I, I, I will say there's a segment of Cavs fans who throw out the, 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 the bat signal every time we talk about Donovan's future because it's triggering to them or they don't like having that conversation now. Let me just be real clear. The conversation with Donovan's future is always valid. Because it is the most important question this organization is facing. Because it's the most significant trade they've ever made. They didn't give up for Kevin Love what they gave up for Donovan Mitchell. I mean, you have to you have to go. I mean, maybe I mean even Larry Nance and the trade that brought Larry Nance from Phoenix to Cleveland. They didn't give up multiple first 
three first with two pick swaps and, you know, three or four of your best players. At best players, three or four of your young players, including one or two of your best players in Colin Sexton and Larry Markkinen. So even just from the, 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 the trade pressure, the pressure to win the trade, it is valid. And I've allowed myself to be, a, but this is where I can do better. I've allowed myself to be influenced by the national knuckleheads who have just maintained the line. There's nothing that's going to happen. Donovan's going to be a free agent in another couple of years, and he's leaving Cleveland. So Cleveland's got to do what they can do to maximize Donovan Mitchell. I, 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 I bought too much into that. The reality is I think there are things that the Cavs can do to give themselves a fighting chance to keep Donovan Mitchell. And after watching this dude for two years, and I'll actually be honest with you, so many people have been giving I, – I, I heard uh, Brian Geltseiler yesterday with Jody Mack late at night giving J.B. Bickerstaff credit for running Donovan at the point when uh, Darius was hurt and when Evan was hurt. Oh, he put all those shooters around him. It's because it's the only thing he had, all right? Like, I mean, Craig Porter Jr. is a nice young player. You're not going to give him 30 minutes a night as the as the primary ball handler, and even then you're not probably going to give him 15 to 20 minutes a night. So, like, JB did what he had to do to win. That is commendable, but acting like JB split the atom with that is a little ridiculous. But the, the greater point here with Donovan is I do think that I we we got into earlier in the show that the Cavs have to have, you know, as much as we love it, it's great to talk about a top two seed for the Cavs. And right now they're a half a game out of the top uh, the, the, the top two seed. If they win and, and Milwaukee loses their next game, Cavs win tonight over the Kings, uh, the, the Bucks lose their next game. All of a sudden you're the two seed in the Eastern Conference. That's really cool. I still need to see this team in the playoffs before. And I need to see this team win a seven-game playoff series or a five-game playoff series. I need to see them win a series before I jump the gun and start talking about, well, Donovan's staying. Before I jump the gun and say this team can do more than just make a playoff appearance. But in the interest of a Donovan Mitchell, Cavs future, Cavs elongated run, one of the things that I, I don't like the reason why there's so much pressure on the playoffs, the reason why it's like, yeah, it's cool if you finish with a second seed. What are you going to do in the playoffs? Because the difference between being one and done in the playoffs, and I, I should say this, even if you're competitive in a first-round series, but you lose in a first-round series, I think it would be 90% likely Donovan's gone this summer because that's when the, the uh, window for an extension opens up, I think Brooklyn's trying to position themselves to get a superstar player or two next to the young guys they have. So all of a sudden, there's going to be a spot open, theoretically. There's going to be pressure to send him home, even though it's not the uh, Knicks. It would be to, to Brooklyn with the Nets, to New York. I think Miami's going to have a lot of pressure on them if they bow out early. You're going to have places open that can trade for Donovan. And that is kind of how things start. It's not just about do you have cap space. It's about is there a need and are you willing to pay the price and are are you willing to acquiesce to that superstar? So I think bare minimum to continue this thing with Donovan to and to continue on solid ground, you need to win at least a playoff series. But I think there's something that we're all missing when it comes to what what I think is maybe one of the tertiary benefits of a Donovan extension that nobody sees coming. 
And for the Cavs to get to that point this offseason, I got I to gotta think you're going to be, you have to be in the Eastern Conference Finals. I think if you're in the Eastern Conference Finals this year, that means Evan has continued what he did against the Spurs. That means that Donovan and Darius have figured out how to win in the playoffs. Whether you're the two seed or the four seed, uh, uh, this isn't. This is going to be a tough Eastern Conference. We had Bill Ryder on last week, and he said something I really believe. There will be good, I mean, teams that could make an Eastern Conference uh, Finals run in weaker years. There are going to be good teams eliminated in the first round this year, and teams like New York are a tougher matchup this year from their perspective with how they've changed. They still might go big game hunting, by the way. They still might try and find yet another big acquisition because they have picks. Um, I think I think Indiana stylistically could be a nightmare with a pace they like to play. If Miami ever got off their ass and and brought somebody in who could be second banana to Jimmy Butler, I think Miami could easily be one of those teams because Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, and like a third really good player could be a tough out. Plus, it's Miami. They're tough to beat in the playoffs, as we saw last year with the Bucs. But the benefit of a Donovan extension, and this is why this summer is so important, this is why the playoffs are so important, and why I'm not going to get too high or too low until I see them in the playoffs. Because if Donovan says, man, we got to the Eastern Conference Finals, I think we've got the 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 bulk of what we need to do here. Him committing one way or another offers you a lot of flexibility. If Donovan commits that I don't I'm listen, I'm not going to sign an extension with you, it allows you to corner the market before that news gets out and to milk the Nets, the Heat, and any other team that you might be able to get something out of for him to get a maximum. He's gonna be he could be the best player available this summer. I don't think LeBron's truly gonna be available. I, guys, I think LeBron's in LA. Talked a lot about LeBron not in LA, but I think LeBron's in LA. But I think when it comes to Donovan, this this summer would be a logical part for him to say, just so you know, I can't sign an extension. I'm not doing it. It would also be a logical moment for him to say, we just went to the Eastern Conference Finals. I think I need a little bit more around me, but I think we're close. And I think what that will allow you to do, if Donovan does say, I'm going to be here long term, I think it allows you to explore trading Darius. And... I know there's the can they. Everybody loves to say, I think you can win with Darius and Donovan. But we don't put like a label on it, like what you can actually do. And I don't, let me just be honest. I don't think you're ever winning an NBA championship with Darius and Donovan. I don't. And and a lot of that is I don't think you have enough of the pieces around them to 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 shelter those guys from what opposing teams are going to throw at them. And I think what you need is I think you need an elite wing player that is on their level. And I don't think you're getting that for trading Jared Allen. I you might get it you probably would get it if you traded Evan Mobley, but Evan has your highest upside. I would not guys, I just would not even contemplate trading Evan. Because Evan's the kind of guy that if you get the right third piece with Evan and Donovan, guys, you could win. You could compete for multiple NBA championships if Evan hits his ceiling and Donovan stays really good for a long time. So I think it's really important. This this off season, or sorry, this postseason is so critically important because you've got to convince Donovan 
that you you will give him a chance to win an NBA championship. Second round of the playoffs, guys, I'm sorry. He's been there. He's done that. I, I You look back at the last couple of years in Utah. They they went to the second round of the playoffs. That, that, that last year was the embarrassing exit early in there. To, I believe Denver, who I think then went on to, to be pretty darn good, if I remember correctly. But the point is, um, I just think we've got to this point with Donovan. I'm, I'm no longer assuming you can't, you can't bring him back. But you've got to go deep into these playoffs. And then I think you really have to, you really have to question how much Darius wanting to be here matters how much you can really get them going together and whether there's a better player that probably fits better in between Donovan and Evan. And I think a lot of this, guys, is simple. I think Donovan, you can run the offense through, and I think you might be better with Donovan running point with three shooters around him and Evan Mobley than with two ball-dominant guards in Darius and Donovan. I think I might favor a little bit more size around Donovan than simply throwing the ball out there with two guards. And and in fairness, the things we haven't talked enough about, Darius's efficiency his bit was really great last year. That's something that does show you these guys could play together. Uh Darius's three-point shooting ability, another thing that shows you it's not even about Darius. It's about if Donovan came to you and said, Hey guys, I want to be here. I think you need to make sure you can find the guy that, that every single player on this roster has to roll up to maximize in Donovan and Evan. And I don't know that that can be Darius. And I think if you were to waste, let's say, year three of Donovan, even after he signs an extension, ah, maybe they can. If you waste it on that, I think this is the year you'll be two years in. I think it's time for definitive statements from the Cavs. All right? Can Evan is has Evan grown enough that he can be more than just a post player defensively and offensively that he can go ahead and give you a chance to keep both Evan and Jared, right? Um all the pieces around them. Are you are you keeping a Coro who right now is locked into the best role of his career? How how many of these shooters are you going to keep around? But it, I the best case scenario for the Cavs is not just go to the Eastern Conference title or go to the Eastern Conference Finals. It is have some sort of answer on the direction of this roster so you can stop doing what you've done the last two years, which is waiting and seeing. You wait and see long enough in the NBA and you see yourself out of playoff contention or out of championship contention. Look at what the Mavericks did with, with Luka. They screwed up the uh, Chris Stapps deal. That didn't work out. Then they tried as like hell to make it work, and then they have been a shell of themselves and trying desperate moves like trading for Kyrie since that very moment. Jimmy Bickerstaff was talking just here recently, uh, actually before tonight's game, about the minute situation on the rotation. This kind of applies to our thoughts on Donovan Mitchell. I mean, we're still working through it, to be honest with you. It's it's gonna be crowded. I'll just you know be honest. We've got a lot of guys that can help us. You know what I'm hopeful of is that you know we don't have to run guys you know 36, 38 minutes because we have depth. Um, you know the plan is you know you have your first half where it's kind of scripted, uh, and then you see you know what units, what individuals are playing the best, and then you shift that kind of into the second half, uh, and then again that changes your closing lineup as well. 
So the reality is, this is not to the, the, the same concern to the degree it was two years ago. Last year, uh, Donovan was averaging 38 and a half minutes per game. This year, he's averaging about 35 minutes per game. Those numbers, I mean, he, he kind of, the, the, JB got bailed out a little bit um, during the win streak because he had a couple of easier wins. Uh, last night, Donovan did him favors by getting tossed out with a couple minutes to go. So, like, those things help. And all this being said, to what, what JB said, I understand his point is you want to reward the guys who are playing the best with more minutes. I think a big part of why you got the ever-loving crap kicked out of you in the playoffs, and that is what happened, guys. They got dominated in every conceivable way, okay? Uh, defensively, they played pretty well, but again, like when it came to offense, they just got dominated, bullied, and they were taken out of that series. And the end scores, the box scores, don't reflect how one-sided that series was. But at the end of that series, Donovan Mitchell was gassed, and there were there were a fair amount of times in the second half where Donovan was on the far side of the screen, not moving, where he was just kind of hands on hips, waiting for Darius to run the offense and see if anybody kicked out to him. That it, for the Cavs to have a chance to win a playoff series, win multiple playoff series, and do what I said, which is put themselves to at least have a conversation with Donovan. Hey, we're two years in. We're just in the Eastern Conference Finals. Can we get you to commit so we can start making the moves around you to maybe unlock the true ceiling of the Cavs with you? A huge part of that is skimping on minutes now. And this is not the same thing as like the LeBron conversation because the LeBron conversation was, man, that you, every single year this dude's going into the finals, we need to make sure he's at 33 minutes per game. And he was usually at about 38 or 39. Donovan is his undersized guard. He's an undersized combo guard. Like, I don't – we're not there yet. But to hear JB say, ah, it's tough. It's really not. The deeper you are, the more you should be able to, to stagger minutes with your guards. That's the benefit, right? Give Darius some run with three shooters on the floor and one of the bigs as well. If, if – Donovan's minutes grow into the second half of this season, it'll be really disappointing. I think it's one of the most important things the Cavs have to watch, considering how hard they had to ride him over the last few months, the last month to six weeks without Darius or Evan Mobley. 216 474 0092. Let's start with Terry. Terry, welcome to the show, buddy. What you got for us? Okay, what about um, Butler? What about DeMar Rosen and Wiggins? Those will be a perfect fit if we can find a way to get either one of those. Uh, are you talking about to, you can, to, are you talking about to add to what the Cavs have? Right. As a small start a small forward. Mm-hmm. Um I mean right. I, I so, think the Rosen will probably be easier to have than the other two. So what's funny about that is, and thank you for the call, Terry, uh the price under Rosen is higher than it should be because there's a, a dearth of great weapons out there. I don't think Jimmy Butler is being moved in any scenario. Um, Miami just traded for Terry Rozier. They actually gave up one of their remaining first-rounders, which kind of blocked them in over the next couple of years and what they can trade. That That's not happening. The Wiggins thing is interesting. Um, Wiggins is having a, a god-awful year, coming off injury. He's averaging like 12 points per game. His three-point shooting numbers are down. I think he's got another three years left on that deal at like 20-some a year. I don't know how you get him. <laughs> But, like, mainly, I think the Warriors might be willing to give him away to free up money right now. 
But, man, I think that's a risk. Being locked into that contract, if he doesn't bounce back, hypothetically, he stumbled onto the perfect role the last couple of years. He is big enough to to kind of be that uh, that number one wing option defensively. And he, last year, I think he shot like 38% from three. That would be perfect from that, that, that kind of three spot in between Donovan and Darius and the two bigs. But because of the injuries, how he's played this year, that is a significant, significant risk. I also think another name, I, I don't know that they'll do it. I think another name that does make sense, and it the the, the question becomes shooting, but Miles, well, and off the court, I think Miles Bridges in Charlotte, if my if you can get a guy as explosively athletic as Miles is, he's he's on a expiring deal. He's got one year like six point seven million dollars. This that's his one year deal. They're off the court concerns, but from a defensive perspective, he could be an elite defensive piece next to Evan Mobley and and next to Donovan Mitchell. I don't think the Cavs will do it because of the off court perception, but. I mean, Miles on any given night is dropping 30 points on teams. He's a hell of a basketball player in an awful situation. And honestly, some of that awful situation, most of that awful situation is what he put himself in. Trevor, welcome to the show, Trevor. What you got for us? Um, I, All I have to say is I think proof is in the pudding. You know, like going forward, you're right. You're in year two or three of Donovan Mitchell being here, and we need some sort of commitment. So if Donovan Mitchell commits, then it's a no-brainer that we have to get rid of Darius Garland. Yeah, I I don't know if everybody agrees. But the the wait and see, and I thank you for the call, uh, Trevor. I don't like the, well, it could work after year two. Like, you, you don't get to maybe, could be, maybe, one day, we'll see. At some point, you got to seriously pursue the pieces that either you reload what you gave up for for Donovan, which gives you a chance down the road to take another stab at at uh, at another player that maybe fits next uh, better next to Dar- uh, Darius and Evan, or you need to unload the clip to make sure. Like I think I think Evan, just regardless, Evan fits around Donovan, and I think regardless, I think Jarrett fits around. Donovan whether Jared and Evan kind of fit together uh, a lot of that depends does Evan keep shooting threes and does he keep making enough of them to to change how you were have to guard him offensively because that just gives more space for the guards to drive right but like I don't doubt that either of the bigs fits with with Donovan Darius is equal parts one of the most, I mean, you put a 25-year-old point guard on the open market, a, a guy that can shoot like that, a guy that has shown the ability to, in some some cases, see the ball to a ball-dominant guard, which even if you're not giving it up to a ball-dominant guard, you're going to give it up to somebody who's ball-dominant in the NBA. Darius is the one guy that isn't Evan. Jared Allen's not bringing back a a great two or three. He's not. Darius could. I think this offseason, based off what you do in the postseason, has to be, all right, which fork in the road are we taking? That doesn't mean I don't love watching Darius. It doesn't mean that Darius isn't a special player. But, I, you know, Portland wasted half a decade on, well, we think we can win with C.J. McCollum and, and Damon Lillard. And they didn't. 
And that took two players who were elite players, good teammates, everything you want. It, it had nothing to do with whether they got along, any of that. They were both six foot three guards who needed the ball in their hand. And because you didn't trade one of them, you never figure you never had the right pieces around either of them. It was, well, we're gonna sign Evan Turner. Well, we're gonna go ahead. Oh, Robert Covington, that's the guy. Every year, it was some different piecemealing of that position. Guys, in, in the NBA today, you can't piecemeal the wing. You need a upper-tier player. Max Drews, nice player. Sweet boy. Great jawline. Sam Merrill. I mean, future Craig Elo. Future Mark Price. Who knows? Maybe a Hall of Famer. Maybe we hoist the, the jersey up in the rafters. The Cavs have a bunch of nice players at that spot. They don't have the kind of guy you need to contend with Tatum, with Brown, with Giannis, with, I almost said LeBron. That's not necessarily the case because it's in the Western Conference and he's also old as hell. But Jimmy Butler, all the loaded wing talent in your conference. That's why this is a conversation. Brad, welcome to the show. How are we doing? Thank you for taking my call. Yes, sir. Could not agree with you more. Um, I think this team needs to get rid of Garland and Niang about as quickly as possible. Um, this this team is so loaded with talent in the wrong positions, and we, like you said, multiple times, we have six three talent with two players at the same position that don't play as well together. And look at our record right now; it's just like Luca and Kyrie down in Dallas. It's the same thing. You said the same thing with Dame and. CJ, so uh, I'll let you sit with that one, but um, though that would be what I would do, and I think that gives them a ton of options moving forward. Brad, appreciate you. I do like George Yang. I like. I think some people are expecting him to be something he's not. It's kind of just a nice three and D player. I think Yang's going to be one of the guys whose value in the playoffs is something that can't be measured. They're just certain role playing guys. I I don't think Struess is going to be this way. But like Isaac, um, Dean Dean Wade, and I can't believe I'm saying it, could be the kind of guy who you just need a game from one of those guys where they kind of they kind of move the needle a little bit, and you'd be surprised how far that goes. You just need enough players on your roster that might in a game catch fire and give you some good run. And that's how you go from a team that can win a series to maybe winning two. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, 
They're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.